Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Excess for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have another awesome triple header for you. We're going to kick things off with Marauders 25 before taking a look at Wolverine 17, and then closing things out with Sword Number 9. Kicking things off, Marauders has been a really interesting roller coaster ride, and we had some really interesting opinions about the way this issue played out in terms of the greater context of Marauders. I think ultimately we've kind of come to realize that Marauders is a huge turning point for the X-Men and now the idea is so pervasive throughout the X-Verse it maybe would even be time to give the book kind of a refresh. Not that Jerry Duggan hasn't done a beautiful job, but the Krakoan age he has forged around his new X-Men title has been so dynamically different than the Krakoan age that his Marauders began during that it might be time for a reflective change because of all of the incredible things he's brought. Either way, we hope you guys enjoy this coverage, and if you guys like what you hear, you'll probably like what you see, so don't forget to check us out over on YouTube and Twitter at X is for Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another magical segment of X is for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, magic, and Marvel week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at DazzlerAOA on Twitter and Instagram. That's DazzlerAOA on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. You can find me over on TikTok and Twitter. Let's do this noise. Yes! Hey, I'm Kyle, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey, guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Comic underscore Canary. And I'm Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, where I will be nominating VC's Corey Pettit for Letterer of the Year for this issue, because the fuck letters were part of the art and it was just seamless perfection and i mean that and we've got gaze in space i guess that means we're talking about marauders 25 i mean come on this issue was like an amazing end to the two-part issue that was number 24 it was written by gary dugan phil noto is our artist nico already mentioned vc's cory pettit on the lettering and tom muller on overall design so I, I gotta i gotta start like with this one question where were we with that cliffhanger from last issue like i was like they're just gonna fridge the whole team like but where were you guys i was unmoved kind of sort of i just sort of i mean like it's such a hollow sort of trick cliffhanger now and that's why i think you can use it in a two-part story but because we know that krakoa means it's you know it's just it's no one ever really dies it's nerd and because that's what krakoa means in the first place I already don't feel like that's going to be the case because we already know these characters are pivotally involved in multiple storylines that I'm going to assume take place after this. I'm further not worried. That would have also been such an unfulfilling end to so many characters that it just didn't feel it was more like, a okay, you could have just put to be continued on the last page. Same deal. (laughs) 
But, yeah, you know, pretty it was much. <clears throat> Tropy. I, I wasn't worried that they were going to be dead per se. I was worried of like we've seen how repeatedly bringing somebody back does have ramifications, and also you you would be taking out what uh, like half of the uh, Hellfire right there and then. So I mean that that could be a really weird like okay, how badly did y'all fuck up? You're supposed <laughs> to be you're supposed to be really good at your jobs, and y'all died. And now we have to resurrect you. What the shit's going on? So yeah, that would be the whole Hellfire Court just gone like mm-hmm. three members of the council like you know damn. you know what this story reminds me of you remember when, like in grade school when you would have to write a paper and sometimes you didn't have a whole lot to say so you'd use really big handwriting <laughs> and maybe some big words and just try to like nowadays the kids change the margins on the punctuation so what you do is you find replace your 10 point font period with a 12 point font period which affects the spacing in a microscopic way that eats three lines off the bottom of that fucker if you're still having trouble go in and you're going to replace the spacing between the words so that just the spaces are 12 point instead of 10 point you'll never get caught but my motherfucking god will you add nine lines to each page baby boy that's a whole other page in five pages kids i just need a five page essay god how hard is this I'm sorry. So you're familiar. Nico's <laughs> giving all the answers to a modern day cheat. Oh, oh my god, that, that's just that's just like the vibe I got from like this. My my summation of this two parter is it could have been an email. Like <laughs> I wasn't the cliffhanger Dave didn't Dave. the cliffhanger didn't leave me like freaked out. I mean I. I'm a fan of Phil Noto, generally speaking, but I don't think his skills really uh, are are best suited for space opera, uh, space opera, space cowboy, you know, shenanigans. Like, Shut up! I need space opera legends, right? Space opera. <laughs> and you get a spaceship, and you get a spaceship, spaceship, you into the legends ball, Arturo yeah. first for putting it in space. <laughs> so I actually had high hopes for this cliffhanger and I feel disappointed because I was thinking along the same lines as the resurrection where I was expecting a full team resurrection but with memory loss setting up this villain to be a longer term like enemy that they're going to have to encounter again. So that's kind of where my mind was going. I'm just like, ooh, how's this going to work out? And then it was just this. It was cool. Don't get me wrong. Like, Kate pride for the win. But it, it was just where my mind went with the possibilities is why I was so disappointed, I think. I kind of loved it. It felt like a long episode where you got to have some fun with the characters because usually it's it's slightly more serious. It's slightly more you know, literal life and death and madripoor and da da da. And so this felt like a nice change of scene and and you got to have some fun with it. And and it yes, it spanned over you know two issues, but it didn't feel like it was like too chunky, too clunky. It felt fun. It felt like they were really having fun seeing this issue pick up and everybody kind of using their skills and science knowledge and ninja knowledge all <laughs> together. I loved it. Mm-hmm. And we got an ice ball special <clears throat> out of it. We did. <laughs> we did. We did. And we got a Kitty Pride and Wolverine reference too. That Ogun quote at the beginning, that was pretty amazing to me. So it felt like a bottle episode to me like in, in TV shows, right? So bottle episodes are, you know, a pretty common thing where they run out of money <laughs> and they've got to, you know, have 
have everything set in, you know, the main sets. So, like, you know, if you're thinking about Star Trek, it's the set in the bridge episode where they, like, you know, like, have everything set there and, you know, nothing goes outside of the ship and they don't have to use the other sets and dress them up. This felt like a sort of bottle episode space for time thing, but it felt like a really good, fun one. One that you're not going to sit there and be like, ah, that was a goddamn bottle episode. It didn't really move the plot along. I don't think so. I think it could have been one issue, but it really did make everything feel more fun and we actually got to see the team like actually act like we got to see bishop and iceman talk and pyro like when's the last time we've actually seen them do anything with the plot of marauders i did enjoy the shaw bishop little like power up <laughs> thing yes. that was fun i mean yeah i don't know like I, where's tempo right like she was she was on like a a whole, she was on a whole page or three and like like <laughs> i don't know i could have done with a lot more of of that than mm-hmm. than this it's like yeah i'm glad to see like the team and hearing from pyro is nice and you know whatnot but like i don't know it just felt really thin to me it, it, it didn't feel necessary and i guess also because it shipped what the same week as inferno 2 like mm-hmm. hey sorry that you know what my attention was elsewhere engaged I think that's maybe why they went light then. Because if you've got like this this really heavy, weighty storyline that's going on that is supposed to be <laughs> pretty much all-consuming, your your other titles might not try and be as big and bold and compete. They might take a half step back so that, you know, the centerpiece can do its thing. And then, you know, everybody else just has a little bit chill, a little bit fun. Everybody breathes a little bit and nobody loses their freaking mind. I just want to jump on the idea of this being a bottle episode and the fact that it does have such minimal impact, because I think that is directly indicative of one another you know when a show does a bottle episode it's usually because they're trying to save money what a lot of people don't realize is exactly how many golden girls episodes take place in the house without ever leaving the house an unbelievable number of them and then you know the only other set is blanche's office also it's the motel room also it's every doctor's office also it's the hospital and that was done from a cost savings perspective. So when a writer does it in a medium that has no budget by way of extreme sets, you need to ask yourself why they're purposely creating this backdrop. It does seem to me, without any sort of malice or judgment, that perhaps Dugan understands that his time on Marauders and what Marauders has been is coming to an end. And he seems maybe a little bit more interested in moving his X-Men plots forward because in one issue of X-Men, I feel like we've gotten more than we've gotten in the last five issues of Marauders. Yeah, yeah, like this is definitely one way to wrap up this series. And I don't think it's like the best way, but it definitely feels watered down and like he's distracted. He's obviously got space on his mind. He loves this crew and he wants to, you know, kind of maybe hook them into possible storylines in the future. And like, you know, the 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 mutant interests lie out in outer space and the marauders are are right there with that vibe like i get that but i mean listen to the fans like everybody is chomping at the bit for what a year and a half now since kate kissed that girl like give me a little follow-up with that you know like you saw all the fans react to tempo you were smart enough to like pull her into the team but like flesh that out like give us more bring avalanche around how do we have pyro and avalanche not side by side in 2021 on Obviously, Steve Orlando's team has been announced, and Steve Orlando is, as a queer writer themselves, like, 
do you think that they're going to expand on that? They're bringing Tempo into the team. Like, what are your thoughts on the already announced Marauders title that's coming out? Well, as I understand it, it's a one shot. I couldn't be more excited for it. I, I think Steve Orlando's great. I think bringing in a queer writer, you know, is awesome. So I'm hoping it's it's really good, and I'm I would love to see Steve either take the helm as a you know as a full time writer on Marauders or even a, another shakeup. Maybe maybe it's just somebody else entirely. But like, I'm I'm ready for Jerry to focus on x-men i really need marauders to get refreshed like this used to be my favorite title like the dialogue between emma and the the drama with hate and like there was so much good here and now it just feels like like there was i couldn't tell you one scene in this whole issue that like really hit for me that like really either amused me or stuck with me or you know like it was all it was all fine like there was nothing horrible but i don't know it just felt like we're just kind of going through the motions so one thing about the bottle episode analogy like i I felt what was a bottle episode was the issue right before the gala where they're like basically having a drinking game with Storm and everybody's sharing like mm-hmm. the best because part of a bottle episode is also a lot of flashbacks and typically like on TV it's like so it's clips from previous episodes this season but for comic books it was cool because it was like Jerry was able to like make up these stories and like oh all of these fun adventures that just never made it onto the page but don't you worry reader they're happening here's some proof like that felt like uh i'm wrapping things up i'm tying up loose ends this whole like cantina and space han solo adventure like with kate and emma just i'm good i am really excited for that whatever it is is be it a one shot or a continuing series i'm really excited about that marauders being taken over by a new writer obviously dugan is really really focused on the x-men book itself and you know i have to say like the quality of the stories that are coming out of that book are are amazing like like i know nico and i have questioned some of the use of like annihilation waves but like they're really well put together stories in that book and i can tell that that's where their focus is i think if steve orlando is taking over the book i have a lot more faith that maybe kate's queer side is going to be addressed Otherwise, it's just phasing Amy up in this piece. (laughs) Oh, Oh, he went there. Thanks, Dad. I do not want it to turn into the Gabrielle and Xena hour, okay? Like, I don't want it turning into that where it's, you know, a whole lot of, you know, queer baiting. And like, oh, they kissed, but doesn't mean anything. Like, if if we're going to have Kate be bi, let her be bi. Like, you know, I don't want her to, I don't want everybody to think it's just a phase with her, okay? Well, I'm sorry, but if Kate does not end up with Rachel Summers, who is non-binary in my brain, I will throw a freaking fit. I mean, what's even the point if she doesn't? Right? Though I'll settle for Ileana. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to say, like, maybe I'm too poly about it, but I'm like, what's this ends up with anybody nonsense? I'm like, everybody loves everybody now. Well, well, I say ends up with, uh, I just mean having a strong relationship between the two of them, because that really needs to happen. And um, Ileana is just an equal opportunity for everybody. I mean, hello, we've seen her try and get with Ghost Rider. And she wanted him to keep the skull on. So. <laughs> oh, my poor Robbie didn't know what to do with that. He had the vapors. <laughs> <laughs> 
And there's that moment, it's page 21 on digital, and Emma, in control of him, is looking at Kate, and she's like sitting there very like, you know, looking very lovingly at Kate. So is is that something that the writer is trying to imply? That there's a more of a relationship between Kate and Emma? Like, no. you know, like, yeah. should it be that case? I personally, before I pivoted on to y'all, mm-hmm. would say I, I really think that it's more of a mentorship relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I can sure. see where I can see where people see that in the writing that's being presented to us. But I, I really think that Emma is looking out for Kate in almost a way that Xavier never really did. Mm-hmm. Xavier did put a lot of faith in Kate. And, you know, there were times that, you know, he actually said, you are the living personification of my dream. But I think Emma, in a way, cared and molded Kate more than anything else. So what do y'all think about that relationship between Kate and Emma? Is there more or is it just a pure mentorship? I mean, to lay the gay gauntlet down here for a minute, Cher is 75 and she looks amazing. I promise this is going somewhere. Okay. And- <laughs> I think the one really outdated sort of like, is that really all you got for me? Thing about Emma Frost that it's time that it fucking goes is that she wants to be young forever. I have no problem if Emma Frost wants to be beautiful forever, but the idea that Emma Frost wants to be young forever actually recontextualizes some of her personality in some ways that are less attractive. If she wants to be young forever, then it stops being, I want to teach children. And it becomes high fellow youths. And it becomes really weird. So like, I want my Emma Frost to be like, bitch, I'm the best looking 45 year old you've ever seen. You ever seen a 45 year old this tight? Check how perky the areolas still are like and i want that for her at 45 so for me i don't think she see and i i even want her to be like come on scott time to stop saying you're 30 baby you're 42 you're 42 if you're a day and you've been coloring that beard for five years and like i want her to own her age and a part of that Mm -hmm. is that she is the queen of mentorship and i think if she's going to possess a midwest american gladiator She's only going to be looking at Kate with love in her heart. And, you know, it's just, I I see sexuality everywhere. I recently did a segment where I was like, does anybody else think that Bobby could have been ace? Because sometimes he sees a big snowman daddy and just wants to fuck. Oh, wait, I'm the problem. Right? Like, so I know that I know that I'm the problem, right? But I think there are relationships that can just be non-sexual and it'd be so beautiful, even if both people are beautifully sexy. I would definitely tend to agree with that. Once upon a time, I was a shipper, but that was me being my little like, oh, am I gay phase? And then it's like, yes, you are. And so now I'm like, oh, it's a healthy mentorship. Let's keep it that way. You're like, that ship has sailed. See, I like I don't want to sound like, far be it for me to sound like the prude, but like, I just never ship them because for me, thinking about the relationship goes right back to uh, Kitty's first appearance and mm-hmm. and like Emma was like kind of more on the le- on, on the same level as Xavier you know like I don't know I mean listen I didn't have a whole lot of problems with her and Colossus not to get myself into into hot water but for some reason the power balance between her and Emma just makes it a little bit ickier for me like, I guess the wait supporting their relationship is the 10 to 20 special <laughs> 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 like 
Uh, no, I'm. It's just I get it, and I get like the kind of sexual tension, and I get you know Kitty protested too much and whatever. <laughs> like, and I like that there's like that they that Dugan has played with that idea, but I also like it more like Emma's her flirty but fun big sister who's looking out mm. for her and you know giving her tough love when she needs it. Like, I think I think they have they really have like a sisterly dynamic, and I think that's that's. And see, for me, it I've never shipped them. Oh, possibly because I'm like mm, Emma's a little bit evil and I don't trust it and I've always really really like Kitty Pride, and so I just I never like in my brain ever went yeah that could work together my brain's going mm, no two they're opposite poles. but they work so well as a a almost a motherly figure and um, you know mentee so mentor mentee totally works like she has love for Kate in the way you know a parent would have hopefully have love for a child so yeah she's like yes I, I have taught her well she is into independent she's working on her own she's you know full of potential i love this kid she's doing wonderful awesome i don't see it as a Ooh, sexy sexy i'd be like no no <laughs> make it stop just no no <laughs> and i'm a and i'm a monster fucker so that tells you how flexible <laughs> my freaking morals are on this kind of thing so yeah hi i'm raven and i would like some godzilla <laughs> <laughs> Mothra proboscis all the way. <laughs> so I'm going to agree with Arturo that I see them more as sister figures, at least during this period of time. Or even like sorority sisters. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like, like mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like, I don't, yeah. like, I'm not going to pretend like, like Jean and Aurora, I actually see them as like found family, sister, kind of best friends. Right. But like, mm-hmm. th- I, I'm not going to pretend that's the case here, but it, it feels like sorority sisters. Yeah. That you hold on yeah. to each other. That that kind of a relationship between the two of them. They're not related. They're, they see each other kind of as equals and they've really come together really well since Kate joined the Hellfire trading company. So mm-hmm. I, I, I really think that it's allowed Kate to grow as an adult and it's allowed Emma to kind of mellow out a little mm-hmm. and allow herself to become closer to somebody else who isn't Scott. Every time someone says Hellfire Trading Company, I immediately go to the Virginia Trading Company and it doesn't help (laughs) that Kate Pride is dressed like John Smith from Pocahontas. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a Hudson Bay Trading Company, so I'm like, same era, but yeah. That's really cool is like that Kate is also learning stuff from Emma, right? Mm -hmm. Like Kate Mm -hmm. is holding her own in the Quiet Council in a way that is refreshing, right? Like she, I know it's just an outfit. I know, you know, it's just whatever, but like it helps. Like she has more swagger now she, I'm glad she's not running around in her training uniform. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, she I, I think way too long. I, I wouldn't be mad if we went back to the Shadow Cat uniform. Uh, and you brought, you know, you brought up Hellfire Trading. Like that's something that I would love to get more of, right? Like, mm-hmm. how is it that we that nobody has talked about the fact that Fenris was part of Sebastian Shaw's like Hellfire Court, right? But like over in X Corp, Fenris has gone full traitor. Like, yeah, they went rogue. They, you know, fuck Krakoa fuck mutant kind we're just going to be as awful as we've ever been and worse and like incestuous Aryans is a really horrible place to start yeah, it's, we did not God, see it's that. Odd. Like they're they're not. I I don't need to see them redeemed, but I think it would have been more interesting. Uh, like not to talk about X Corp, but like yeah, I was like the less we talk about X Corp, the better. 
to kind of see those characters that are like irredeemably bad like they were like fundamentally just flawed horrible shitty people but seeing them trying to be good and trying to like make amends and like we've seen the light of our way like i think that would have at least been more interesting than like no we're just horrible and selfish but whatever it happened so why not like do a story about that like i don't need a whole bunch of corporate intrigue but like there's a hellfire court like you've got certain positions some of them are filled some of them are not like oh no and i'm sorry the lady from madripoor is not with the black bishop obviously mm. and the black king sheep but she's with the hellfire kids that's what she is with the oh, okay. new hellfire kids ah. okay so something that was mentioned earlier has me really thinking so like i think nico you brought it up about emma's age so emma frost has in her first appearances was written as a probably a mid-40s lady still very attractive for her age during the morrison run she obviously got de-aged to her 30s or 29 i think it was she's like i'm not even 30 do we think that that was a lie? Do we think that like Emma is always almost always presented to us as a woman who's a little bit older who has amassed a lot of skill in her telepathy and a lot of fortune through her telepathy as well. Like I for me personally, I I read her as mid 40s. Like she's like one of those really hot milfs. She's like the Blanche of the show. So like she's <laughs> a re- the really hot milf that you can never really like put that age on. So do we think that she is really in her 30s or is she just trying to act younger than her ages i'll start with kyle what do you think about that you know i've never thought of that i don't feel like she's in her 40s okay, uh, i i i feel like she if she's in her 30s it would be early 30s okay. like what do you think about kate's aged though because kate's been aged up age down age up Kate feels like early 20s to me okay i i hear i hear you i hear you on it and i don't I can't argue with anybody's context. I just can't not 40s her. Like, she's so 40s for me. And, like, (laughs) I see Scott at, like, 42. And I see Logan at, like, 48. And I see... I see... Exactly. You can't go by Logan's actual age at this point. So it's the same way you can't go by Magneto's actual age because his entire body has been completely cellularly regenerated. So the age of his physicality is very separate from the age of his body honestly i think there's like not a least interesting thing to talk about like less than the age of superheroes right like <laughs> i think their relative ages to each other I'm is so glad like... i brought it up and talked about it a few times <laughs> no no i'm just like i love it i love discussing this <laughs> no it's like like emma frost would never be so gauche as to actually say her age like whether she's Which lying she or did. telling just... the truth like yeah yeah, like she just yeah, and for sure she was lying to those kids. When she said she was 27, <laughs> she was probably like 36. But like, you know, how long ago was the Morrison run from the Krakoan age? Like these things have never mattered less now that you're able to be resurrected. Like what exactly is your your physical and age every at this time, point? Every time they resurrect her, she's still in her freaking mid 40s. And I will tell you this, I am so <laughs> goddamn tired of people trying to de-age female superheroes especially so that they can be in their 20s or or 30s at best or not even 30. Like age is such a dirty fucking thing especially for a woman to have 
Okay, but wait, if I, okay, as a 42-year-old, if I need to, if I were to be resurrected tomorrow, you better damn believe my paperwork's going to say 30, period. Like, Look, the there's no reason. Look, the other thing I would be 30 on me is my like, knees. Hey, I, I'm, I, I'm uh, happy, I'm happy with where I'm at at 42, but, you know, why, me, why be 42 if it. I could be 30? I would much rather be in my 40s, which I am currently, than I was, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be 30 again. I yeah. like my gray hair. Like, okay, you want to DA my knees and my joints okay that's one thing but overall i want to be in my 40s i want mm. my face to have that weight i want to have that gravitas and that experience on me i want people to respect me as a person who has experienced life and not just oh you look like you're 18 which means you probably don't know shit because you haven't lived and it's like no i look 40 i know that i damn well look 40 you will treat me like i'm 40 and if you think you're going to talk down to me because i'm you know a quote-unquote dumb kid you're out of your freaking Mind. I'm a so body like, mod yeah. freak. I want wings. So <laughs> I, mean, I, made I this argument look. earlier in a, in another recording earlier this week with us being like, I just the whole de aging process is a whole morality thing. I mean, like, yes, it's kind of mm. cool to have the younger body, but I feel like it's almost overrated and we get boring, especially after the first time. Where yeah, it'd be cool to de age a little bit and learn from your mistakes, but at the same time, the mistakes are who made you and who made me and who made all of us and we've learned from them absolutely and then just who wants to live forever life would get boring if we didn't age i think i don't want to live forever i just want to live real hard for 50 years That's right? I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm like if i get if i ever were to be resurrected sure give me a like a full hairline again but like i want to keep my age like that's why inferno 2 really bothered me because Irene was so de-aged. But I do hear what Arturo's saying. Arturo's pointing out that with Krakoan discussions of this, you're not de- you're not losing shit. You're getting right. more time in a fresh younger model. And you know, <laughs> it's not always ultroning it. Sometimes it's just Quentin Choir and his fingernails. It's just what it is. Yes, or his package well, size. <laughs> well, when you when you de-age the body. I think you also have to assume that at some point the resurrection process, as as nice as it is for mutants to feel like they're immortal right now, like if you've been around the block, you know that that's not going to last. Mm -hmm. So you kind of got to treat every time you're resurrected as if it might be the last because you never know when Nimrod's going to come and, you know, (laughs) blow up the Arbor Magna. Like you want to be left, you know, as fresh and, and ready to deal with things as possible. Without losing as many any things as I can try putting in my body real quick. I just want to live real hard for 50 years and see what happens, guys. Bring Give on the Kraken. <laughs> No, I think I, to me, it's just I'm, I'm so tired of ageism in comic books. And we see it most often leveled on female presenting mm-hmm. or femme presenting characters where you can't be an older woman like Irene, a.k.a. Destiny. You know, no, you have to be de-aged. And, and you know, that's supposed to be a, a bonus. Like, no, Destiny was a hundred some odd years yeah, old. She was like, like Aunt May plus. She was Aunt May and then some. Like, <laughs> but I but I loved that because it was a very it was something different. Everybody looking like they're, you know, 18, 19, 20 is not exciting to me. I want aged characters because guess what? They've been around since like the 60s and 70s, you know? I I want But Destiny to see... did look like a bag of wrinkles with hair. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Hello, she was 120 some odd years old. What did she you do? She the turn of the century, so. <laughs> like, like, I understand de-aging her so she can stand on her own, but goddamn. Well, that's one place where Destiny never had a problem, because her legs, even at 100, you could not block. <laughs> My, she like, really did. Like, honey, those were gams. Those are the kind of legs you get insured. Oh, you can, you can, you can hear the hinge squeak on those things if she ever uncrossed them, I'm sure. That shit like, can rock Fenty any day. Thinking of that relationship, there was this really, really cute, to me, Marvel fanfare backup story where it kind of explained where Storm went to go get the information to where Rogue was when right before Storm got depowered. Mystique transforming into a man and dancing with this, like, 100-year-old Destiny. And I was like, that was the sweetest moment ever. And, like, I just, to me, like, her being old, them both being old and Raven looking younger was just such a big part of their relationship that mm -hmm. I know that Mystique did it for her wife. It just seems like it takes away something special from that relationship. Mm -hmm. Her wife. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so who That's why we can't have nice things. <laughs> who else has thoughts about the ages of these characters? Well, I mean, I do have a thought about something a little bit more slightly on topic-ish about the book. And it's yes. like, I remember being like drawn into this, like one of the most exciting things when this happened that made us, and like Kyle, you were there for it, when we said, no, we're jumping to the present, was the potentiality of the totally revitalized idea of what it meant to be an X-Man. What it meant to be an X-Man for a while was tread water till they got the rights back. And mm. then suddenly it was cool to be an X-Man again. House and Powers changed everything. And one of the things that I was very critical of was I felt that the name Marauders was a bit in poor taste considering the Marauders committed genocide. It just didn't sound like a really good name to go with, but I was won over. I thought it was dynamic. I thought it was terrific. The logo is amazing. And I feel like the promise of what I was told Marauders would be was always sort of consumed by the narrative of the experience of these characters. A book I really mm -hmm. loved was A Hundred Bullets, and A Hundred Bullets by Azarello and Rousseau is just like, a, a, it just the book just drips blood and cum, and it is just incredible <laughs> for a hundred issues. But it's originally about a an agent named Agent Graves who brings you an attache with a hundred bullets and the proof of who fucked your life up so that you can get revenge. And even if you are caught shooting this person in broad daylight, as long as you're not, you know, on camera so they can't prove it, you're going to get away with it because the bullets will be permanently untraceable. And it's a magic situation where you can get your revenge. And that's the premise of the book. But over time, as you begin to unwind the mystery of the organization, it becomes a lot more about the mystery of the organization than about Agent Graves bringing attaches to people. And I feel like Marauders started with we're the Marauders and we're here to do marauding things, but outside of the occasional King and Black special, I feel like what I was sold as the bill of goods on what Marauders mm -hmm. is pretty quickly <clears throat> faded. And I didn't know if anybody else felt there was not intentionally a bait and switch, but perhaps a plot-based pitch and a character-based follow-up. To me, yeah, there there was that promise of we're going to be pirates, basically, <laughs> you know, whether it was, you know, pirates on the high seas or pirates in space or, you know, you know, pirates doing piratey things. That's what I was sold. But it honestly felt like anything but not that I've ever been mad at the adventures, but it's like, I don't I don't think I ever really got the, the pirate feel from this book. It felt much more like we've got a bunch of loose cannons, but we're going to let them do that thing because they do it well versus like the Hellions. <laughs> which was team fuck up no but like early on we were like on the boat and we had you know we were 
capturing a shipment of whatever and Kate died and her body was thrown into the seat. Like there was, it definitely felt more, I, I don't feel like it was a bait and switch. I feel like we've quote unquote drifted from the mission. Like the clarity of this book is lost. Like now it's kind of, it feels like, uh, like Jerry's just kind of like playing by tune. Is that an expression? Is that the expression? When you're just kind of like making it up as you go along? Oh, like, playing by ear? Playing by ear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would, yeah. I definitely hear what you're saying with that. Yeah, I I can agree with that. I mean, I I do enjoy the the trip that we've been on, mm-hmm. but at, at the same time, it does feel like it got caught up in the wave of all the other stories from the other books, and it wasn't able to get back on path. Mm-hmm. My thing with Marauders is it was sold as a team book, but yes, it was always the Kate and Emma show, right? And that's a fair that's a fair criticism of a lot of a lot of X Men books and like overall like Rosenberg really that was like the one really good thing about the Rosenberg run where he point had Danny point out to Scott where you know hey the X-Men is a lot of times been just the Scott and Jean show plus maybe Wolverine you know like the rest of us are just kind of like the supporting characters in your life that's what Marauders always felt like to me and I really miss the idea that we were supposed to get these amazing characters like Pyro I love Pyro I want to see more Pyro I want to see why Pyro has formed this amazing relationship with Lockheed where Lockheed's sitting on his shoulders and not Kate like I want to see more of Bishop like obviously this has to hopefully this has to be before Inferno because Bishop is talking about the training school stuff instead of the Captain Commander stuff which he would be during after Inferno I want to see you know more of Bobby like and I want to see him actually written by a queer writer who doesn't make gay jokes that i'm kind of like oh okay yeah you're straight (laughs) like like i i don't i don't want bobby to go around saying like "Mm, i'm looking for all the top men or like hey i'm guesting on rupaul's like drag race like okay cool yeah i got it like you kind of like half-ass know gay culture but you don't know anything about it and that's the thing that I'm getting from Bobby. So, like, there's all these characters that I really wanted more of, but this this has been the Emma and Kate show. Mm-hmm. And Storm occasionally, which has occasionally been occasionally nice, but, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like in a world where we're saying, number one, Storm is better served in Sword. Sword might be the weirdest book in the world. And like, <laughs> you know how, like, I, I was the kid, so I'm not being weird. But like, when you know how there's that kid and everyone's like, he's weird. I don't know if his art is good or not. He's just weird. So we just let him do his thing. He's weird. The teachers don't ask questions. He's <laughs> weird. Right. I kind of think uh, that's Sword. Sword is the weird art kid. And Sword already got into RISD. Don't worry about it. But Sword is doing its own thing. And Storm is kind of the only mute that can handle that. But if even Storm is like a wallflower in this title from time Mm -hmm. to time, the title's kind of unbalanced. It is, because especially like Storm and Callisto, like Callisto was such a part of this book for a period of time. And that that dynamic is like the most fascinating dynamic to me because it's it's very like the are they friends? Are they enemies? Are they going to fuck? Like, that's the dynamic that I really want to see more of. Sorry. That is yes. <laughs> I feel like in your memory, you're filling in more Callisto than we actually got. And mm-hmm. I and I think that's like a perfect example of like one of the missed opportunities in this book. Like Christian Frost, where the hell has he been? Right? Like right? somebody that like He's was, just been floating around. Like if you're gonna bring him in in the beginning, because I remember I was like Christian Frost, like there's like a hundred other people I could think of that I would prefer. But okay, cool. We got Christian Frost in, in the mix. And then like do nothing with him like nothing with his relationship with bobby and like 
did they hook up? Didn't they hook up? Do they not click like that? Like we could have a full like friendship between two queer characters, but like, nope, we got Christian Frost, but everybody forgot he's even here. Callisto, kind of the same thing. Like she got pulled in. Oh, we're going to give her a cool job. She's working with Emma. And then that's about it. Like I give me some Callisto and Emma drama. Give me them like building relationships. Like I'm so happy for Storm being liberated from this book because like she's doing the most in sword and it's wonderful to see and yeah this could be this us book, but you're out here burying your gaze this book is yeah. wait for yeah. it rudderless yeah <laughs> oh, oh. oh that, that took my brain a second how dare you <sighs> that that, that mm, talk about a ship that sailed oh. <laughs> but yeah no you're 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 absolutely right they they have buried a lot of the potential queer storylines or even just the development of these really great characters that a lot of fans have very much gravitated towards mm -hmm. and it's like they were here and they're gone it's like mm, where are they i've got blue balls waiting for more queer stories what the fuck that's a really good question just to ask we were promised a lot of queerness we were promised we were given a book with bobby drake mm -hmm. who has been underserved by this book we were given kate's first on panel same-sex kiss mm -hmm. do we feel this book was just catering or queer baiting to the audience they're queer baiting straight up oh uh, yeah no i mean That's... i i don't i don't think they're that smart <laughs> I, i'm sorry <laughs> i'm not well, i'm not I trying mean, to correct anybody but like i, I don't queer think they have to be intentional I think they said, hey, Jerry, you're a really big pro high profile writer right now. What's one of the things on your agenda? And he said, I want to do some gay stuff. And as a straight man, he said, this is what I think gay stuff is. <laughs> and I don't I, I, I'm trying to even is it gay baiting if the person who did it truly believes they've served the purpose? Like, I, I'm not making excuses or defending anyone. I'm saying I, I think it might be a different crime. I think okay. it was a crime of far too little understanding of what was necessary to commit fully to the idea. I think they think they're getting a B plus for effort. And <laughs> they're getting and, and I a think bit that's lower what, of a and I, in the 90s or the 2000s. <laughs> It's like you're checking some boxes, but you're not making us uncomfortable. Whereas looking at X Factor real quick might have been a little too queer for, you know, for some of the flat scans to, to really <laughs> actually feel comfortable with it. Gay baiting isn't ideal, but I think it's better than nothing at all. I know that sounds okay. kind of sad and pathetic to say, but like, yes, we deserve better and we deserve queer characters written by queer writers and queer creators and all of that. But when you know how to eat breadcrumbs, you know how to eat breadcrumbs. Exactly, yeah. baby. And if you grew up in the 90s and like that's all you got if that so you you know you're happy for that and yeah it should be better but it's better than nothing you know i don't know i'm i'm i, I this yeah I, it's the same little, bummer boat <laughs> this little yeah. story has really kind of like put a cherry on top of marauders for me i'm like okay i am good i'm done i'm not really even excited about this book anymore and that's such a shitty yeah. feeling because i loved it before and now it just feels like okay we're treading water cool it's not necessarily a knock but to me like it was queer baiting because queer baiting doesn't necessarily have to be intentional it just has to be what was the end point of your delivery and the, the end point of the delivery means we, we haven't seen any follow through on so many really wonderful queer stories and like even if these characters were not queer they really were not utilized they were just like hey we're here we're really important to your storyline because we're interconnected with these other characters and then they somehow just 
poof and faded into the background and it's like um i'm sorry weren't we supposed to have an important storyline with with these characters and flesh them out and they just they just kind of went away like what the shit so yeah it's it, it feels like queer baiting but it feels not intentional it okay. just felt like it that's how it came out like almost like if murder and manslaughter it's sort of like mm-hmm. queer slaughter or or bait <laughs> queering I don't know, but it's definitely the one where you only get five to ten, and if you do a lot of work in the prison kitchen, you can get out in eight. I definitely follow your logic here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. But overall, I still, I still love the book. But yeah, there was, there were some flaws to it, but it was still a lot of fun. But yeah, I kind of like using the word "was." I'm, I'm ready to say goodbye to no. Marauders. By Me not, by, yeah. I'm not ready to say goodbye to Dugan. I'm ready to say goodbye mm-hmm. to this iteration of Dugan's vision for the X Men, as mm-hmm. I embrace his other visions that are coming up. Like I'm more excited about what other yeah. stuff he's doing. It feels like Dugan is ready to say goodbye to Marauders, and that's, mm-hmm. that's what this issue and this, this last two issue series, and that's what even the issues before it coming up to it have seemed like. He's put his focus in other places. Mm-hmm. He is putting all of his eggs in another basket, and he's just kind of doing the duty here and trying to wrap up a story that he really doesn't even care to wrap up. Mm-hmm. So this has been a series that has been sort of marred by some controversies, plus or minus, when we've started with from some of the accusations of queerbaiting to some of the cultural insensitivity around Kate's death mm-hmm. and the Krakoan burials and the Bishop stuff. So we've we've had a lot of things that are... I personally feel have been unintentional slights against minority groups, but does do these slights just really prove to you all the importance of having a more diverse writers group of the X-Men team and the fact that they all need to keep working together and work even more together to try to improve the standing of the stories to be more sensitive towards others. Oh, absolutely. Like they absolutely need to either get more sensitivity writers in or they need to get more queer staff members who can give input on some of these books going forward or at least on some of the characters going forward and maybe not even just queer but like they need a more diverse staff so that when certain things come up like if you had if you have somebody's jewish on staff they might be able to go hey that literally is not kosher you would never show this thing like super against a lot of what we stand for or i mean we have some muslim characters now so i really hope they are getting writers or staff members or somebody who is very knowledgeable in the islamic faith and cultures because to misstep there just really do a disservice to people who are already deeply underrepresented so yeah they they, they need to diversify and they need to get to a point where it's not just check off a fucking box because one of the mm-hmm. big things that is a problem in inclusion and diversity training and discussions is if you have an office of 10 people yes it would be really great if you could in an office of 10 people have you know everybody check off a different box in terms of open idea of employment but that's not really what we're talking about when we talk about these things we're talking about the market of employment within that industry as a whole right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. if the marvel offices have 40 people and i'm making up a number i'm just throwing a number out there if the marvel offices have 40 people the goal isn't okay great we have one person of the jewish faith we have one person of islamic faith we have one queer guy we have one queer lady we have one person who don't ask them what their gender is wink wink we have somebody here who immigrated from Russia, the part of Russia you want to be from, right? You don't want it to be like, oh, look, we've checked off a number of boxes. The goal is to actually right. embrace the notion.
notion of intersectionality where you don't yes. have the problem of, oh, fuck, the only Muslim voice we have is out today. Well, make a good call and hope it's in the name of Allah. And <laughs> that's a huge problem they face. If they had mm -hmm. more people to go to, it wouldn't be a big deal when one of them doesn't have the answer that reflects mm -hmm. the expectations of the community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, they could always just hire us. We could do a lot of good. <laughs> I'm just saying. We've already got the numbers. We've already got the intersectionality. We've already got you know, the scales of queer and colors. I'm happy to be in charge. Just put me in charge. <laughs> right? I'm already in charge. I would say personally for myself, just the thing that... It, we are past the point in time where I think that we give a pass for trying to tell these stories. So in the 2000s, we gave Pad a pass for trying to tell these stories. You know, I think at this point in time, we're in 2021, we're almost in 2022. Marvel really needs to make the effort to have this diversified staff. And, you know, there's so many different ways you can go about it. But we we need sensitivity readers on staff. We need people that they're going to listen to and say, hey, you know, that's it's not going to be accepted if you have your one of your most predominant Jewish members get tattoos, which is not in the faith where, you know, if, if you have the Krakoan funeral the way that you want to present it, that is not going to be in faith to do that. That's not to say that everybody in, in a group set or a faith is going to follow the same rules. It's not going to say that obviously every queer is not going to be the same. You know, some people hate the term queer themselves, and some people prefer the, you know, LGBTQIA. But I, I think that the more that you have, uh, as we've put it so well in the past, you know, just one person checking the box. Like if you have Shan out there and Shan is the only person who is, you know, the, the main person who is a lesbian, Asian lady, disabled woman, you know, you've got to be careful with the stories that you tell with them. And you really need to have more of a diverse group of characters that you are telling stories about. We have so many white cis has characters you know where are the trans characters where are the you know non-binary characters where is this diversity that marvel wants to try to show us they have when they have the you know the marvel voices issues but where are they featured in the stories every day mm -hmm. mostly new mutants and very <laughs> yes. like kind of you know if you're just following along and reading the annotations you're getting that they're trans or non-binary but it's like not really coming up and i think it's yeah. cool that vita i mean vita's perfect example of like the kind of talent you want to be bringing into your writing Absolutely. you know like but also we as readers can expect like it's on Vita or or Tinny or anybody else if Jerry gets something out the door that you know falls flat on its face I agree with you guys like the answer is always more 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 like more representation both in the stories more representation in the writer's room on the staff like more in every direction and every shade yeah. This is something that we talked about when we talked about Reptile, right? So we talked about, is the story going to be for everyone? You know, it's it's a prominent Latino character. You know, is the story going to represent every Latino character? No, it's not. It's going to represent Terry Blass's own personal reflection on what a character should look like. And that's not fair to the writer to expect them to be the Latino character for everyone, because it's not what a writer can do. I, I think that we need to, you know, make sure that we have this diverse group of writers and artists that are going to be out there and they're going to be making sure that we can get all of these different aspects. Just even to bringing it back to X-Men, I know a lot of people didn't well receive Cinegrace's Iceman series because it sold, told a very specific story that was maybe more personal to Cinegrace. But, you know, the fact that he is the main gay character, a lot of people expected it to be a story that everyone could consume. 
but these these writers have to tell their own story and we can't expect every story to be for everyone well and it's because i am not gay for you <laughs> i am not gay for you and right. so when i write gay my gay is not for you my gay is Absolutely. for me and I think when you have such a limited number of gay characters gaying in the books, you wind up where that one gay has to be all the gay for everybody. I'll be honest, Iceman by Cena Grace did not do it for me because maybe because I was like blastingly out at 13. I was like what? the gayest kid you knew. I specifically experienced a very disconnect from Iceman by Cena Grace because it wasn't my story that just meant that i didn't buy it that's all like, <laughs> i don't know why like, people have yeah. to take down the thing that's not their thing right yeah. and i've known so many people who've had that story so that's why i'm like you know this resonates to yeah. me because i know those people who have that story so like mm -hmm. it's not my story like yeah i was I, I came out really early i came out at 16 like i i lived my truest life but like i know so many people who had to wait until they were older to have that story and mm -hmm. that really resonated mm -hmm. to those people yeah well, and it did for even, me it's not even gay stories it's queer stories they bring us characters and they build a bit of tension around their sexuality and who they are as a person and then suddenly they don't follow through on that story at all they don't develop these characters at all over new mutants we have cam who is non-binary we have brother nature who is trans we have you know queer uh disabled asian women but then we get we get really no background or stories that per se use them because we keep going back to focus mostly on the white characters or the or the characters who fall within a cishet kind of normative mm -hmm. okay. and it's like why are you bringing us these queer characters yes we're asking for them yes we want them if you try and take them away now i will shank you with a paintbrush <laughs> you don't want to know what i will do to get my queer characters back but why are you bringing us these beautiful wonderful queer characters and going here yeah. have a little tension oh yeah now you want to have the story okay we're just gonna wander away from their story now and go back over here to our white characters because we gave you two pages of queer people i'm like no motherfucker they have interesting <laughs> shit going on over there and i want to see it i am so tired of the goddamn summer's family saga that is x-men the one little thing i've got to disagree with you on with new mutants is that it's not as much white focus because we do have danny sure. moonstar as one of the main focus characters mm -hmm. and especially for has vita has been writing them yes oh no they've yeah, been fair. doing yeah. shan is a main focus character too but even vita's writing of shan they haven't shown her being as outwardly lesbian as i would want them to be like mm -hmm. shan has always been a character who she's going like hey yeah i'm a lesbian but like we've never actually really gotten to see her mm -hmm. discover her folk sexuality like there's yeah. been spots here and there but we've never gotten to see shan be in a relationship like mm -hmm. and and i didn't mean to like focus it strictly on new mutants i'm looking at the overall uh you know x-men kind of in the world like new mutants is one of the very few places we even get to see open queerness yeah yeah other books even less so you might get a you know something in passing like oh look we got kate kissing a woman and it's like yay bisexuality let's embrace it and then they're like and we're just gonna wander off and never address that again i'm like um excuse me excuse me there would there's there that that's a really big thing to come out even to yourself as bisexual and start to recognize yes your different sexuality so 
to go, yeah, I kissed a girl and now I'm going to ditch. I'm like, girl, that's just a, that's, that's, that's a drunk night out when you're like, yeah, I'm cool. I kissed somebody onward. Like, no, like there, there needs to be more to it because they built the tension specifically around it. So like follow through. I mean, like everyone's been saying, it's been, it's been on a disappointment train, kind of. It's promises that do not feel fulfilled, where they think, oh, we're doing such great strides here with everything. And meanwhile, I'm sitting over here like pussy dry, like, no, we need more (laughs) foreplay here. This isn't what I was promised when I came into the bedroom, you know? Mm -hmm. Where's that macaroni in a pot? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Very specific, Raven. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I I am also kind of disappointed, but I'm going to withhold judgment just yet until I see how they utilize Somnus once they bring him into Mm. the main books. Okay, fair, very fair, very fair. And this Marauders, hopefully it's not just a one-shot coming up, does seem to be trying to fulfill Marvel's role as the queer book because we've had X-Factor, which got unceremoniously canceled, which was a queer book, and then Guardians Mm -hmm. of the Galaxy took over as our queer book, unceremoniously canceled as well. Mm -hmm. And now we've got Marauders with a very queer lineup. I mean, Dokken is the world's resident pansexual disaster show, and that is me. I am that pansexual disaster, ready to just disaster all over your stir anytime you need. All right, and then any final thoughts to wrap up this interesting issue of Marauders? I don't think we talked about the issue, but I really liked talking about the book. <laughs> I know. We talked about the issue. We talked about queers in space. I, and we definitely <laughs> did. I just think that that's actually indicative of the fact that Marauders is going to be remembered as a title, not as issues. And I think exactly. yeah. X-Men yeah. by Hickman is going to be remembered as issues, not a title. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really fascinating way to gauge a book's impact. We're going to remember how this book changed things, but we're not going to remember the individual stories. And that's mm-hmm. a fascinating, indelible mark on the way this book will have changed X-Men. I agree. Agreed. Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now this next segment, Wolverine 17, in so many ways, we almost have trouble talking about Wolverine issue by issue, and we wind up getting caught up in who is Logan and his bigger story, but this time we actually talked mostly, kind of, almost, sort of about the issue, kind of, almost, and we had a really great time doing so, and I think it's because Wolverine is such a multifaceted character that the different iterations of him are able to be reflective of different interests, and so at some point, there is sort of like a cross-intersection between people and Wolverine and what's happening in Ben Percy's title and it's a pretty fun time to be a Wolverine fan so we hope you guys enjoy this next segment. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. The show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now I'm Nico and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram at Twitter at comic underscore canary. Oh, it's me, Steve. And you can find me on Twitter 
at howdyduda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Hi, everybody. I'm Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And we are here today to talk about the one, the only, well, I guess he's not the one or only. I guess there's a couple Wolverines. Well, we're here to talk about Wolverine number 17, which is brought to us by Ben Percy, Lan Medina, and Cam Smith on writing pencils and inks. We also have Hava Tartaglia over as color artist with VC's Corey Pettit on letters and designed by Tom Muller. John Hickman finishing out his tour as head of X on this title is continuing to sort of really not be at all a part of the Wolverine book. It kind of feels like there's never been a Hick Minzy touch on Wolverine by Percy, so I'm not too worried about losing Hickman in regard to this title. But how do you guys feel about that in particular? If Hickman's been the head of X and setting this whole thing up, what stake does Wolverine have to lose with the departure of John Hickman as a title? I don't know if I can properly attribute this to Hickman over Percy, but there was a pale girl. <laughs> 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 of this run maybe maybe that comes back we definitely saw pale girl show up again in x-force didn't we when we moved over to mikhail's side of things so hard for me to remember whether it <laughs> happened in wolverine or happened in x-force that's true that is know. true <laughs> i feel like the lines the lines between wolverine and x-force are getting more blurred and i'm really happy about that like i was thrilled to see domino playing such a big part in this one yeah i agree evelyn and i were talking about that in the green room before we started so yeah it's it's definitely something that i'm liking that they're kind of feeling the same at this point but yeah i keep thinking about sage and how much more sage i need in my life and how like feels like she would she would just fit in this in this story so much better than than maybe even domino you know and i i really agree i think it's because in so many ways i okay i'm about to age myself horribly here but i'm about to age myself in one of those ways that was like as a teenager my favorite records were tapestry and rumors so couldn't quite be exactly correct right but wolverine has this horrible habit of absorbing other people's characters for his own benefit i think about the number of times he has assimilated characters like carol or jessica drew electra you know he has a habit of pulling in other supporting women who deserve to be leading women and many times they get to be over you know the course of their career but he has this habit of kind of drawing them in and i feel like domino feels and i know they have a history i'm not i'm not a mat not ignoring that but in many ways it sort of just feels like domino is slotting in the same role she does for cable and i feel like that's just a shame because sage just like you're saying we need more of her and percy definitely has her over in the pages of x-force so perhaps seeing Sage elevated to that next level would have been a cool opportunity to see a character grow. The whole thing with Wolverine and Domino in this issue is interesting because I like seeing them play together, but like kind of like the last major character thing between the two of them was early on in that Terra Verdean arc where Domino had come back uh, without her memories because of what Colossus did to her. And Wolverine was on to the fact that she had clearly not been acting the way that everybody had expected her to given her prior wishes and she had she just kind of brushed it off and you know things were tense between them it's it's interesting that we haven't yet seen them kind of like work that plot point out but i i believe it must be coming especially with the reveal recently in x-force uh well i don't wanna so i just 
I mean, like, spoiler warnings for Inferno number two. Check in, everybody's read Inferno number two. Yeah. 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 Yep. The, the last fucking page of Inferno number two was the most significant Colossus related gasp I have had in the last decade. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I really <laughs> thought that was such a fucking power move. That, that to me, okay, that to me is the monkey's paw like curling around my throat because here I've been. <laughs> asking oh, yeah. begging for more colossus we need more colossus he's on the cover of the new x-force yeah let's see another colossus story and like now he's being played he's like a puppet i i i was on a on another pod talking about how colossus should be on the quiet council he should be the guy that's like not interested in war he's there because he wants to like nurture krakoa's culture and arts and music and like i had this whole pitch on like what i want to see colossus you know on the quiet council so i got my wish but not quite because he's just being mind controlled and played and I'm excited that there's interesting stuff happening, but yeah, I, I think it'll be another decade before we see Colossus get any kind of happy ending because this is this is going to be a rough a rough patch for him. Yeah, and I don't even think it's necessarily. I, I think we're we're losing some context over the years on Colossus because some of the bigger things that have happened to him. I agree with everything you're saying, and only want to add that one of Colossus's defining character achievements in his run was his time spent on Muir Island serving mm -hmm. along. Side Moira McTaggart in the final 30 issues of Excalibur before that situation had impacted him so greatly he completed her life's work for her and killed himself with the legacy virus cure, completing her work. So Moira and Colossus have a weird blood tie there that I think is just ripe for the picking. Hmm, yeah, that is really interesting now that you bring it up. Mm -hmm. Especially since at the time he thought she was just a human who had finally contracted the legacy virus, which was now affecting all people and he saw her as his little sister's next step you know what i mean like it took his baby sister someone so innocent and now it's taking those trying to save us yeah. and so like there's a lot of layers there and i think the reason i'm okay talking about these two books like you know just talking about colossus like he's in wolverine is because for my money percy has paid played colossus and wolverine as dual sides of the same slightly colder country oh for sure Sure. And also he is in this issue, <laughs> hilariously enough. Actually is, yeah. yeah, he's at the karaoke party. Well, he's like the one of the only recognizable mutants in that crowd, hilariously. I don't yeah, I was like, I don't know any of these other people, but Colossus is definitely there. I think I saw Vanisher there. Well then I wish he had sung Vanishing by Mariah Carey. Well, that was an obscure Mariah Carey reference that no one knew. Clunk. So, yeah. um, alternatively, how album. to disappear completely by Radiohead. Ooh, also excellent. Ah, uh, well, if we're talking karaoke. I think I think you kind of can't be an X-Men fan without having like an inner X character. We all kind of got it. Maybe we don't know exactly our power set. Maybe we all know exactly how fabulous we would look at the Hellfire Gala. I'm looking right at you, Arturo. <laughs> but I feel like every one of us kind of has that mutant karaoke jam somewhere inside of us. So I'm wondering, guys, 
What would be your mutant karaoke song? Oh, Losing My Religion by R.E.M. Oh, I love it. I love it. What Now, what what makes that your mutant karaoke jam? Uh, it is a song I just really love to do <laughs> on karaoke. I just love to wail that song and whine as hard as I can into the mic. Uh, it's very fun, and the mutant that I would be would be me as a mutant. So the mutant that I would be would also love whining into the mic for that one. Alternatively, Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Which, at, that's that's a choice, bro. I love hey, that. Hey, if you can whine, you can whine. Oh, oh, at me, you know, I, I prayed at the school of Tori Amos, so nobody, nobody loves a good 90s wine like we do. Yeah. Oh, and congratulations to all the Tori Amos fans out there. The new album is so good. Um, so good. Yeah, just like Steve, my my mutant karaoke songs would probably be very similar to my regular songs, which are for karaoke, which are basically anything by the Chili Peppers. Like, I'll do Under the Bridge. I have to do, like, low songs. Like, my bass, my, my voice is, like, low. You have to utilize your resonant bas- basso profundo it's very respectable yeah like gene would yeah, like say, that we're all staying in our ranges yeah gene would suggest that i, I sing in something in my range so. uh yeah can we talk about that because yeah cash and cave both definitely in wolverine's range that's really good absolutely yeah I, oh a thousand percent i see him doing real tom waits shit i mean also like going out west is another favorite i like to do but like <laughs> i think that I, wolverine would be really into that i think if wolverine has to go up his register a little bit it's to do have a little faith in me <laughs> it's a little John Hyatt, and I just I'm fine with it, right? Yeah. Evelyn, talk to me. When you unleash the comic canary upon the karaoke court, what song sticks in your sound? Oh, so the problem is I'm a terrible singer. So oh, that's, <laughs> that's not the problem. problem. You think like I'm good? <laughs> I usually go towards the end once people are drunker. My personal go-to song is 1985, just because that's in my range. I have definitely a lower range. I'm very, very alto. I think like I would definitely be like a nature type mutant. That's just my jam. And so I would probably do something like something with like flying or something like just I can't think of anything right now that I would be able to sing that has something to do with flying. But I would probably make that type of joke. Defying gravity. Ooh, love it. I'm Ooh. in. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> to, if to I can over- change it to an alto range, sure. <laughs> I, there's got it. Every, every wayfish, fucking fade cut, hair part, blonde tipped, Broadway gay has defying gravity as the third song in his repertoire. So I promise you that there are far too many obnoxious alto based for men versions of defying gravity out there. Perfect. Because <laughs> I do like singing that in the shower. <laughs> I mean, I think we can all agree I'm, I'm loud. And I like attention. And that's what I do, right? I would also be a telepath because I'm also very invasive. So I would do Dream On by Aerosmith, which is one of my <laughs> karaoke standards. You fuck. I get I get right the fuck up there. And it's one of those things where every now and then I hear somebody groan and go, that's not a fucking song you do with this kind of karaoke. This fucks. And like, I get up there and the foot goes up on the on the speaker. And I start with the long draw look up into the crowd. And everybody's like, Jesus Christ, he thinks this is for money. And like, yeah. Yeah, I would I would absolutely be Kid Omega up there kicking things doing um, doing Dream On with my uh, alternate color toenails. Very that nice. Be, Very nice. I'm I'm just that guy. So how did you guys feel about the specific karaoke choices that the X-Men had? 
I'm oh, gonna, I like I'm going to be honest. I did not like the Unbreak My Heart joke. Oh, come on. That was great. I'm criminally obsessed with Tony Braxton in the first place. And when Jonah and I started dating, I was like, I need to introduce you to one of the records that changed my life. I need to introduce you to Secrets by Tony Braxton. And he said, oh, Tamar's sister? Ooh. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I felt so sick for the rest of the day. But point of story, uh, not only am I a huge Tony fan, but that particular thing of multiple people kind of playfully, foolishly singing Unbreak My Heart has been used on several sitcoms in the last couple of years, once on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and then the same writers brought it on over to One Day at a Time. So there's kind of this trope of characters in the backseat of a car wailing on Unbreak My Heart. So it just sort of felt like I've seen it at least two times in the last five years and it just felt kind of like why if pyro sings we didn't start the fire if blob sings blah brah ann that was i did that one that I really <laughs> like that one but that is a oh that's a stretch blob <laughs> yeah no i i groaned that that I was even too much of a dad joke for me i groaned but it was i it love was that we so all cute. have varying opinions on this guys please i'm gonna i just want to sit back C- carry me on your karaoke thoughts i mean i think we all are positive on it right just to different degrees yeah oh absolutely all of it plays really well you know there's just ones that worked better or worse yeah honestly honestly of all these things the only thing i didn't think worked was logan being just like an absolute piece of shit to gene for no reason she's like you want to sing a song i got some ideas and he's just like i'd rather eat a glass sandwich and wash it down with piss yeah that that line that line was like a little much for me too i was like come on like for why is he acting like this it's the child of pissing in Magneto's helmet. Yeah, uh, right. Gross. Still not a fan uh, of that. Yeah, I don't see why. I don't see why I should have to ship Gene and Logan if he's going to be like this. <laughs> yeah, I agree that it was definitely a bit too much for someone that we're supposed to believe is in a relationship with the other person, or even a friendship that is. Definitely- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even uh, someone that you have to live in the same city as, like. There's 200 of you. Why are you making enemies of your only friends? Logan's not a likable guy to begin with, but my Logan doesn't needlessly be rude to anyone. Yeah, like, I don't know. That's that's such a weird note. I just want to say one huge highlight of karaoke for me was not so much Blob's song choice, but Blob's outfit. I I yes. love I love our little happy bartender in his Hawaiian shirts and all of that. Like I love that Blob is living his best life, but I'm obsessed with him pulling out his leotard to go karaoke. Like I love the gold accents. The, on the gold shoulders. accents. Yes, I need to. I I like. I'm glad Blob is living his best life, but I need to see him in action a little bit more. And and I and I never want to see him without a mustache again. Yeah. I'd I'd like to see him in more of this kind of action. I think he would like really rock Ruby Tuesday. And that's even kind of how I, yeah, I, I want a specific thing that they're never going to give us, which is fine. But I real the story I would like is Annalie getting a father figure in Wait, Blob, I, his boss. What? Sorry, nothing. You, you clarified. I wasn't sure if you meant the Morlock woman or the small child. Right. It's, it's like when there's Ronin, the guy with the swords and Ronin, the guy with the giant hammer. And I have to be like Ronin with the eye, not Ronin with the, oh yeah. 
and not Ronan with the A. Right, I have to clarify. Um, <laughs> but I would love to see him and Annalie kind of develop a sort of like Annalie never really had great uh, family figures. Blob never really had a reason to try. And I think giving him this job and, you know, him being the bartender and working under, I don't know, I think this is kind of the most interesting Blob has ever been. Like, it's it's sort of shocking how interesting I find Blob that I want to see him in sort of a Paul Reiser adoptive Greg Evigan, my two dads kind of situation with Annalie. Speaking it's, of uh, my two dads, I would have loved to see him doing a little duet with Eunice, the untouchable man. <laughs> that would have been so nice. Yeah. Eunice could have done Can't Touch This. <laughs> oh, no. That's actually great. <laughs> Right. And yeah. you know, for an encore, Unicyan could have come out and they could have done too legit. So like I, f- I firmly I firmly believe that Pyro would, in fact, sing We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh, yeah, because we would not think about it past the fact that there is a word fire in it and that he has to deny culpability. That's all he's thinking about. Just, yeah, (laughs) nothing to do with how it's like the Forrest Gump of songs. Uh, The remix, though, involves him sort of giggling in the background going, yes, I did. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you know, he gets a kick out of that. Also, he appears to be burning the entire front row. It's like being at a Rammstein concert. Yeah, they're they're in the water. They'll be fine. For me, I think the interesting part of this segment was just how much Maverick was telegraphing, and it continued throughout the issue with his telegraphing. What do you mean? I agree. Can, can you I very much see that. So he sings, uh, "You've what is it? You lost that loving feeling." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then throughout their mission, he's dropping hints that. That he's not on Krakoa's side. Yeah, when he says he only works for pay. That, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what called out the end of the uh, issue to me, which is still sort mm-hmm. of ambiguous. But yeah, I, I don't trust this man. I don't trust him, but I will say this is maybe the most interesting Wolverine's ex-boyfriend has ever been. Yeah. yeah um, like there's there's like been. some layers here. It's not just like, I mean, you've seen him go on like on ops with, with uh, Wolverine and with Sabretooth. And he just was like a pretty cut and paste soldier uh you know tactical guy like there's not there hasn't really been much to him but this like seeing him and knowing he's been like visiting krakoa and i i don't trust him but uh, i do like what they're doing with him yeah it's so nice we're getting interesting ever. characters from characters previously not that interesting seems like a theme let's keep it going mm-hmm. maybe they can make jeff banister a little more interesting too while they're at it <laughs> Well, and that's actually part of it for me. I don't know if anybody's familiar with various runs of John Constantine, but there are so many ways in which this reads like a flip of the Azarello run where there's this sort of weird backward investigation. There's a man on the outside. There's sort of this weird kind of like competing dick play at certain points, but they really should be working together to get to the source. Is that the one with the Bruce Wayne parody? Yeah, the one with uh, Stanley Wayne. I hate that. Stanley Wayne. What? You say you hate that run? I do not like that run. I'm sorry. I like it. I think it highlights all of the problems Vertigo had at the time in a really encapsulated way. Vertigo (laughs) really lost its way for a good three or four years in an effort to be Vertigo. And I think that run has great artists, great writers, has great ideas behind it. Because I'm a big Azarello guy in general. Like, I really like a lot of his work. Mm -hmm. But that is is not the one to share with people. Yeah. the million. It's not, it's maybe not the lowest point. Oh, God, no, that's the diggle. That's diggle for me, but neither here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, 
Okay, so we're talking about Maverick. I really like talking about Maverick because I think he is a character that in many ways gets the animated series, which I think is of note. Now, I have no problem with what I kind of consider the sliding scale of reality. We remember certain things bigger than they were and certain things smaller than they were. And a good portion of it has to do with time dilation compression as we experience it. As a child, you experience things uh, appropriate to your scale of time. And as you get older, you experience things appropriate to that scale of time. So a storyline that took six months to come out when you were 10 years old represented a 20th of your life. But a storyline that takes six months to come out when you are 40 years old represents an 80th of your life. So it has different value in terms of the significance of the amount of time that it takes. And I think Maverick is another character where perhaps people don't realize just how little this guy has appeared. Maverick has had 62 appearances up to before this that's actually wild well he was one of those characters that was swept up in that wave of the 90s cartoon because when that was coming out they were doing some stories in the cartoons that felt like oh my god that just happened like last year like we saw the nasty boys on tv like i don't even know what the nasty boys are doing like we've seen them pop up a little bit in krakoa but like if you made an animated show today about the x-men very little chance you get the nasty boys right and maverick was right in that sweet spot so was omega red they were characters who yep. had literally just come out, just been introduced in like 1991, and then here they are now in a literally cartoon. November of 91. Yeah, and I then- think per- Percy must be a big fan of that series because the Nasty Boys themselves have appeared like only in X Force and Wolverine in the, it, this run. It was just it was such a cool time because I, and again here let me pull out my rocking chair and and cane and gather around children. Let me tell you about the 90s, but like it was an interesting time because stories that you knew and that were. Respected Respected and revered like Dark Phoenix were just as likely to get airtime as the Nasty Boys and Maverick, right? Like things that felt like, oh, that's my stuff because that just came out. I have his first appearance. And like it kind of legitimized the newer stuff. It made it feel like this stuff is just as valid, right? And I don't know if that holds up, but at the time it just felt like this magical moment where like everything was being caught up and swept into the animated series in like a remake mixed kind of way yeah you're absolutely right it was that that is probably why the 90s have such an outsized significance in the history of the x-men in a lot of modern day minds and i think that relates back to exactly what you're saying the the post-immediacy age i talk a lot about numbers of appearances and number of times characters have blah 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 and something i say is you know you'll notice that this character appeared 20 times in the 1980s and 40 times in the 1990s and in the last 20 years they've appeared 732 times well that's in part because now the books, you know, what used to be six months of books is one month of books. So everything is moving at a much higher rate and there is a slightly higher expectation of consistency of appearance in that regard. And I think that's why the 90s is so hit and miss because there's people who love the experimentation of just try the thing. And I think, you know, the best way to exemplify the 90s for me would probably be Harley Quinn. She was created for the animated series. She was such a success. She has forever changed comics. Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, you can do that and you can do it so well that it really does have permanent impact. 
and kind of reverberates. And I, I think you're really right, Arturo. I think there was a sense of this is mine, right? How often did we hear the phrase, not your daddy's X-Men in the 90s? Right. And, or not your dad's comics. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, there really was a sense of this is mine. Who this Maverick is though, I don't have any fucking clue. Like, I don't know that I get this character. I'm in because I love the face shield. I love that he has the most anti-COVID mask anybody could be wearing right now. The only <laughs> thing exposed are his nose and mouth. So I'm in. But do you guys get a sense of Maverick here or does he seem to be playing some sort of catalytic purpose it's unfortunate that he looks like I mistook him for Havoc like visually a couple of times when he's not oh wearing yeah mask. yeah same same I thought it was Havoc at first yeah he's got that neck collar and the kind of black suit like he does not have the the concentric rings but without without that that's the main reason I can distinguish him from Havoc at all in this comic and Havoc's not like a really distinguishable dude so no, Havrick is every guy on Men Over Thirty. What's 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 Maverick's real name? It's actually Christopher Nord, and he was born in Germany. He uh, originally goes by Maverick, but would later go under the alias Agent Zero. He has a very limited amount of family that is known, including a brother Andreas Nord and his wife Janetta Barlasini Nord. He has served on both Team X and Weapon X. And most recently, up through his death, was based out of an underground bunker in New York City. And yet, somehow, he only has 62 appearances. It seems like a lot of that is packed into a couple issues of Weapon X or something. He had a one-shot in January of 1997 before a regular ongoing started in September of 1997. From there, he would go on to be a part of the Frank Thierry Weapon X series that would conclude in uh, Weapon X Days of Future Now. He would then return for Wolverine Weapon X by Jason Aaron, an all-time favorite series of mine before disappearing yet again, resurfacing temporarily in the 2019 Doctor Doom series, which I, you know, like, not being that guy, but that's kind of sus, because we hadn't realized how much Doctor Doom was going to play a huge role in the X-Men at that point. Now, while Christopher Cantwell does not currently work in the X offices by any stretch, it is of note that longtime X artist Salvador La Roca provided both the pencils and inks for that, as well as the current letterer on this title, Corey Pettit, provided the letters on that book. So, you know, Maverick is a a pretty mappable character who can be really hard to trace, even with that map laid out before you. I I read that Doctor Doom series. I forgot Maverick was in it. I read that Doctor Doom series too, and I could not have told you that Maverick was in it at all, even having read that Maverick was in it. Holy shit. Well, I'm glad he's back. He's he's definitely more interesting than he's ever been before, I think. And I, I also liked the previous Maverick issue in this run. That was Wolverine, right? That, that was arc was a highlight. Yeah, that was a Wolverine arc. So it feels like what the X team has been doing just in general, where they're just picking toys out of their little toy box and playing with characters that haven't really been played with before. And this is a theme that I've been noticing throughout this whole X-Men reboot stuff. And it's something that I'm really enjoying. Agreed. Yeah, it is yeah. like the one of the coolest promises of Krakoa, right? Is We'll see everybody. Exactly. Hopefully, eventually. There are some people that still haven't shown up. And I think in a lot of ways, the credit is owed to, in like, just like, for example, the Evelyns and Arturos. Evelyn, something that I know you have strove to create in your own art as a cosplay artist is you don't just do any version of a character. You do specific versions of characters. And Arturo, as somebody who has your mark kind of indelibly all over X-Twitter, whether you're on this show, you're on other podcasts, there's a loud, strong 
voice that stands specific iterations of specific moments. And I think it's really important to contextualize that the Krakoan age seems to be born of a love of fanfic and fan art and celebrating those moments. It feels like the X office is just jamming on these old characters and kind of re-spinning new stories around them. And, uh, and, and Maverick is a good example of somebody where he has such, there, there's not much to pull from. So it's almost like you have this blank slate that you can, you can pin stuff on top of. Like, I mean, look at Hellions for a whole bunch of blank slates, right? Like we didn't have much of a concept of nanny and orphan maker going in and like, look, look what Zeb Wells has done over there. Like it's yeah, the concept I did have was specifically crush my toes with a sledgehammer. And now I like them. So that's a turnaround. Yeah, it's it's the coolest thing about this era. I mean, like uh, bar none. Like I'm all for you know, give us some new characters and new conflict and whatever. But I am such a sucker for all of this like nostalgia and you know, spoiler alert. Like Destiny's alive for the first time since like what 1989 or something. Like just and who could have saw that coming? Incredible. Like it, it's like truly my favorite thing. And it's so wonderful just having just seeing the X team just. Re- really play with all these characters because like you said with my cosplay like I go for reimagining characters in a high fashion type way um like right now I'm working on a Groot ball gown that is I decided to hand embroider and I'm regretting my life choices but um but we won't <laughs> but it, it's always fun to see like like I said like Blob and Maverick and just seeing all these characters just being reimagined and I love seeing reimagined characters I'm always a proponent of new and interesting and exciting and while nostalgia is really fun and I like a a healthy dose of nostalgia having something new and exciting is what I always enjoy in comics specifically and so that's like this with Maverick um even the blob like thing I know we keep bringing back to blob but iconic (laughs) And just seeing the characters evolve has been really, really fun for me. So, Kyle, I know that Logan isn't inherently a character that you love in the first place. So sort of the suspension of that that you need to do to engage with a Wolverine book can be like, I don't want to be like, it can be taxing, but like it's taxing for me sometimes. I don't care about all of these people. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I think was intended to humanize this book for readers who don't always engage with Logan's ultraviolence was the inclusion of a kid. Now, I don't know if it was reading this book around Halloween that he kept calling the kid Pumpkin, but... For you, how did adding a child into the danger level of the situation Logan and Jeff directly find themselves in, how did the child affect that for you? I don't really think it affected it at all. I was more interested in Jeff's story than his kid's little minor appearances asking for pancakes and give me pancakes yeah and and extra candy i she she's an important part to his story but i feel like her story at the moment isn't really important to the overall wolverine story whereas jeff's is and does Jeff cut her hair? She had cancer, so it's growing back. Oh, that makes sense. Yep, she's recovering. Yeah, I mean, and what a what a great healthy way to recover on the lamb. Yeah. With your dad. Yeah. But trying to he's... investigate how evil mutants are, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know if, if 
he's trying to investigate how evil mutants are. I think he's he's keeping an eye out for Logan. And anytime, especially after what happened in Madripoor with Dolores. So when she pops up with Krako and Tech, yeah, I'd be worried too. Yeah, yeah, I like to think that he's sort of a back channel for Logan into the CIA or FBI. Sorry, whichever three-letter organization. Right, whichever shady, corrupt. I love that at the end of the issue, you find out that all of the narration has been a note that he's writing to Logan. I love that. That was such a neat little trick. (laughs) And it's a letter in a bottle. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that was was neat. That was very clever. Like Percy showing up. Just a castaway on an island lost at sea. (sighs) Just another lonely day. Yeah, we're going to have to do that karaoke. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? You what did you put in my head the other day? Synchronicity. I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> so I, I did, but I didn't. Mean to. One of the things that I think is so important is that you were not the biggest fan of this title. In fact, when you initially came onto our show, you had been a little hesitant to interact with this book as it wasn't your favorite. But something that I've seen in the last few issues is your connection with this title has certainly grown. And I was wondering if you would be able to just kind of throw a couple of ideas together about what it is that Percy has done that changed the book so dynamically? Oh, you know, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. A part of it is definitely the addition of some new and exciting characters that I really am invested in. Solemn being the biggest, you know, Solemn is a... uh, absolute hit just a banger character if Solomon's gonna be in wolverine that was an easy sell for me on its own but also like they interact so well he's perfectly devised as you know a queer arch nemesis for wolverine to have and honestly since the ten of swords tournament one of my very favorite crossovers in many years uh, i've been looking really forward to the fulfillment of that promise between Solomon and wolverine and then you know now we're getting maverick back and maverick's interesting getting more domino content i think percy has just done a little bit less focusing on strictly logan and more on the interesting characters around Logan and that has really pulled me back to the series in a way that makes me excited for 10 lives of Wolverine 10 deaths of Wolverine excited to finish out this run of Wolverine before then definitely excited to read that Sabretooth series afterwards but yeah I don't know it's it's partially that and it's partially the dropping of storylines that just didn't work you know for me like the Vampire Kingdom storyline um, yeah, if I got if my choice is Dangler or waste my money, Dangler. Thank you. Yeah, and like it's honestly, I'm satisfied with that conclusion. I don't think J- Jason Aaron has a rough time making that really compelling in the Avengers for me as well. So, and the two didn't seem to connect in a way that I thought they absolutely should have. You know, between Wolverine and Jason Aaron's Avengers, definitely the development of Wolverine into a solo book instead of an auxiliary X Force book really helps. Like X Force characters coming over, really exciting, but like no longer having it feel like it's a part of X-Force and having it feel like it's a Wolverine and Friends book is actually making me much more interested in reading it because honestly that's I think that's Percy's strength and that's I, that's what I want to see. From. I can't see Wolverine and Maverick together without thinking of Sabretooth and Omega Red. So you know one thing like that I'm that I'm curious about is where the hell is Omega Red right because he was tied in with that whole vampire story uh, last we saw he was they were basically letting him loose after resurrecting him or torturing him and leaving his memories intact so like he didn't know that he was that they knew he was dirty um i'm just curious like where and when we're gonna pick that up if ever so that was something that was on my mind it's just like these plot threads that you know like you guys were saying that maybe they weren't working i mean i i'm certainly on record as hating everything to do with vampires and x-men like it's just i like vampires i just don't need them mixing with my x-men comics 
So yeah, I'm just curious, like, is that ever going to come back? Where the hell's Wolverine? You made me think of the, the pale lady for the first time in a year, probably. I think that's dropped and I'm perfectly okay with that. Honestly, the conclusion to that was mainly like she works for Mikhail or works with Mikhail with the Russian mutants. So we could just focus on Mikhail, I guess. You know, it did definitely seem to hit a point where it got very anti-Russian, better dead than red. And yeah. I think Omega Red kind of got swept up in the let's maybe not not say all Russians are evil all the time in all of the books because it really between this and again Aaron's Avengers it was kind of like it was it was definitely a some pretty uncomfortable like do you know Cyrillic languages well to the gulag then yeah there's been a ton of that and New Mutants too Ed Brisson's New Mutants if if anybody recalls that right yeah it's been it's been yeah, you know, I, I guess I hadn't realized just how altogether Omega Red and his uh his sweet sweet man bun got dropped so hard. That's and, and sure, Kyle, you desperately long for the return of Gunter Nelson, Omega Red. That's not his name. He just looks like Nelson from Nelson from the 1980s, the hair metal band. Oh yes, totally, totally. I I, I I'm just absolutely dying to know <laughs> what happens with him. Well, so then that is a great question, Arturo. I'm so glad you brought that up, guys. Is there anybody you hope pops up in the pages of Wolverine in the next couple of weeks, in the next couple of issues before the title closes out? I don't Sol- think. Solemn. Yeah, I don't think I had anybody. Yeah. Yeah. on my radar but solemn uh i want solemn i want omega red i've been asking for for somebody to resurrect cyber just because i thought he had a cool look he was like a good wolverine villain that uh, and that daniel way used him pretty cool in wolverine origins mm-hmm. so there's some recent cyber that's kind of worth revisiting yeah, you know, that's not a bad idea, but... As soon as we bring up Wolverine Origins, then, like, we're getting dangerously close to Romulus, so... <laughs> promise. I promise. I promise. No, none of that. None of like that. I feel if we have Solemn, we don't need Cyber. Um, unfortunately for Cyber. I also feel like if we have Solemn, we don't need Romulus. Well, we because... don't need Romulus. That's just a... We don't need Romulus. We didn't talk much about the art on this episode. It just slipped our minds a little bit, I think, because we were focused on the karaoke. But I do want to shout out Len Medina, who does a really killer job here. I would like to see Len Medina finish out the art on the series even. Like, I, I love the Cuperts, but like I've gotten plenty of that, and it's good. But uh, Len Medina has really won me over with the work on Gamma Flight, and I really, really like it here in this issue. Everybody looks great. And I love Len's been around forever. Like, not new to the table, and definitely, I didn't even realize it was a fill-in until I couldn't find a single page with 32 tiny panels on it. <laughs> Once there was no page of 32 tiny, itty-bitty advent calendar-sized panels, I I don't know why I channeled Millhouse for that, but <laughs> all the panels are small, Bart! Um... So I I didn't realize it was a fill until that really strong art. Did anybody else feel the art had a, a lot of personality to it as well? I definitely agree. It carried the book very far. Yeah, I thought the it art was, was great. Really well done, I thought. Yeah, it feels like Cubert uh, is a natural fit for a Wolverine series. It's been doing it forever, but I would not be opposed to getting like a Lan Medina Wolverine arc. And if we're going to get a book called The Ten Deaths of Wolverine or The Ten Lives of Wolverine, if we're going to focus on multitudes of Wolverinery, I would love to see a multitude of Wolverine artists. Let's yeah. get like a best of the Wolverine artists that have come before and let's be brave and let's be bold and let's put some new talent to Wolverine. Like, 
like not just to be the guy who's like, you know, inclusion and diversity and not to make it sound like a stamp we have to put on every book. But think about how characters evolve under the pen of someone influenced by other ideas. In the last few years, Marvel has produced an unbelievable number of Wolverine Latinx inspired designs. So why aren't we getting Mexican artists and Brazilian artists and Cuban artists? Uh, Why aren't we getting them on Wolverine? Why is it always kind of the same big name Anglos when the character would benefit from the infusion of more styles? Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, Sword has been such an incredible roller coaster, and I think I recently described it as like the weird book. I might even have done it in this episode. But one of the things I love about Sword being the weird book is that it goes some really daring places. Now, I personally hope that the ultimate reveal from the end of this issue is that WizKid is not a double agent, but rather a triple agent. So hopefully that's going to be a little bit of a relief. But until then, we hope you guys enjoy this coverage of Sword number nine. And as As always, guys, we love making this show for you twice a week, every week. So until next time, guys, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to X's for Podcasts, where we cover Marvel's mutants, magic, and more. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. Yay. And I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. You can find me over on TikTok and Twitter mostly, so come on over. Join me. Hey, guys. I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drusifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. That's right, DazzlerAOA on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, fuck you for sounding perky this early. <laughs> it's all an act. Yeah. <laughs> it's that customer service voice. I feel it. <laughs> and we hope you survive this experience just like we hope customer service workers can survive their experience. But also, <laughs> unlike the Super Guardians, because Aww. they got bodied, and to Dude. quote Nathan, that must mean we're covering sword number nine friends in high places written by al ewing art by jacopo camagni coloring by fernando sinfuentes of proto bunker studios as well as the letters by vcs ariana meyer and this issue if i'm going to be transparent to our audience was probably my least favorite issue of sword so far which to say Mm -hmm. having eight really great issues before this is a pretty it's pretty solid and you know not everything is going to be amazing it's not everything's going to be to everybody's taste but there were just a couple of things that i have questions and concerns on and (laughs) (laughs) the first thing i want to start with is talking about how i don't care for this storyline for mac i do not really understand why mac is a part of orcus and working against the mutants it doesn't really make sense with his character yeah, I, it doesn't track at all. It literally, Logan is his best friend. He's worked with multiple mutants as well as other species on his team between Alpha Flight, Beta Flight, Gamma Flight. There are so many different people he's interacted with that weren't just humans. Hell, Northstar and Aurora were on his team for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And it just feels weird. And I would love to get everybody's here's perspective of, do you, do you feel this is right? Do you think this is appropriate with his previous characterization? Is this a new direction? I personally don't 
don't care for it. I don't think it fits. And I think you could have used literally somebody else. That at least would make sense. Captain Canada beat wholesale ass on a dude dressed like a Mountie because he was coming after his gay friend's kid. Like, like this is so unlike James. Like, it's yeah. it's really, really weird. And it feels like a massive fall from grace for literally no reason. Like, this is not his character. This is antithesis to his character. Yeah, to me, I kind of got the vibes that he doesn't really understand what's going on. Like, right. like that, that he doesn't really get what Orcus is. Just because he says he's a part of Orcus, but um, he can't, he can't hurt the mutants, which is kind of like but you're with the Orcus. So that's kind of like, right? doesn't, it's kind of like intuitive. So I, I think he just doesn't really know what's happening. And and once he realizes the like severity of the situation, he's going to like get out. To me, the only thing that would make any real sense is if James was trying to act as a mole at this point. <laughs> he's like the worst mole <laughs> ever. There's, there's a lot of in Max history that really, really shows that this is not the move that he would make. Obviously, when Alpha Flight was disbanded by the government, by Department H in Alpha Flight 1, he believed in the team and his group so much, he made them special agents and they just became like backup reserves RCMP and without any funding from the government. Even lately, even in the last Alpha Flight appearance, James st is still trying to do the right thing by Heather, even though Heather has been really affected by the events of what happened before and is on a really dark path so james is always the eternal boy scout like it would be like mm -hmm. if captain america to me joined orcus it just yeah doesn't no. seem like something that's in his character i mean this is the guy who's who's yes it's kind of weird he's letting his ex-wife live in a fantasy like almost like a holodeck kind of thing but doing it so that she can try to get better be with her daughter still and you know he's not above going outside of the government it means to do the right thing and for him to do that for the wrong thing just seems very wrong yeah that it, it's captain hydra all over again to me like <sighs> That's it's like, uh... it's so outside what what is any kind of normal and like i read alpha flight growing up i i read plenty and i'm just like this, this no <laughs> no what what is what what yeah, even, even that weird robot james that came back for a while like around the <laughs> g100 wouldn't be this evil like yeah all. and it's, it's 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 like oh god it feels like he's trying to be like not evil like i don't know what's actually going on here like there's there's literally no way you can claim any sort of freaking innocence naivety like you cannot claim to not know what orcus and guy rich are all freaking about because they are loud and very very proud about how much they hate mutants and how much they are willing to absolutely destroy them by what every dirty trick and underhand oh means possible They're the proud boys of the marvel universe is what you're they saying? are they really really are and i oop um <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear what everybody is saying, and it's James the Boy Scout in a very similar way that I find that Scott is a Boy Scout, and that mm -hmm. Scott often will always do what's right for the team, and sometimes that might be morally questionable. Scott, in times when he's not in control of himself, has done evil things. I don't think Scott himself has made specific evil choices, or with the mm -hmm. intent of evil, is more of these are morally dubious things he's trying to do to protect his family, himself, or the, you know, the mutant race. Mm -hmm. So I see that in the sense of James trying to 
either protect himself or protect his wife in what he thinks is the best steps. It just feels so weird. Also, everybody needs to get over that the mutants terraform Mars move on. Right. That's we like, named it first. I'm sorry. Fucking what? I, well, yeah, in, they named in, it and really didn't do anything with it. So Right. They couldn't even get to it. They just... You know, and it's funny. He acts like the Canadians like named it first or some weird ass shit. I'm like, you mean the astronomers from way the frick back when who saw a small ball from very far away? Like, <laughs> what the shit? <laughs> what this the just, absolute shit? <laughs> this whole thing just felt like a really bad way to bridge over the currently named Alpha Flight with the former Alpha Flight after sort of that Captain Marvel run really dismantled any old ties to the team mm. um, through the name Alpha Flight. Yes. <sighs> Yeah, and and I'm sorry. How did your imperial guard like? <laughs> what the shit was that fight sequence like between the war pony? Like just like <laughs> like all of these characters are supposed to be like top level, top of their game, super good at what they do. They have shown it like within a few issues, I believe. They have shown that they are some of the most competent, capable you know uh, uh, characters out there, and they got taken out like little schoolyard bitches the super guardians really got bodied first and before we dive into the fight sequence a little bit more i would love to know everybody's relationship with the shiar empire as well as the super guardians in general i think they're pretty cool i obviously from nico stan and love lalandra <laughs> so i obviously have to love Zandra as well as lady deathbird but i would love to know everybody's perspective of do you share that similar love and interest with the shiar empire and the super guardians do you not like them do you think <laughs> they're not they're not as cool because some of them are not as cool there are some that are better than others and i'm just saying that if oracle was here none of this would have happened right like if, if any even just minor telepath had shown up uh i i mean death bird is death bird i i love to hate her um mm. i find well i mean zandra is like the childlike empress and it's mildly annoying to me but i don't hate her like anything like that but like the shiar empire i don't trust them as far as i could throw one of their ships so yeah. But still, I, I I recognize the strength and capability of the of the Imperial Guard. So, like, I got my start yeah. with like the Dark Phoenix Saga. So there, I do have like a special place for the Imperial Guard in my heart. But I also find that like the Shi'ar in general and just like that side of the X Men can get very convoluted very quickly, especially in like the more recent stuff. So I'm just kind of like when it comes to them, like you know, they have their moments of good stuff, but like to me. It's just very convoluted. I do like the Imperial Guard. I like the Shi'ar stories. Like like Drew said, the Dark Venus Sega was like amazing, and their usage in it was amazing. When they first appeared in early 100 issues of Uncanny, it was cool. It was new. It was different. I think you run with the same problem that you would like say in Star Trek if you have the Borg too much. The mm. more you have to feature the Imperial Guard, the more you have to be able to take them down, and the less fearsome an adversary they become. So if you feature them too often, they don't become the really cool like you know galactic shattering event that it should be because this is this is a team of the best heroes not out of the planet but in in a system in a whole the whole Shi'ar system mm -hmm. and member worlds and even even from earth like there's members there so you're really lessening the power and the importance of the team when you take them down this easily mm. absolutely the Shi'ar empire literally taught 
talks about this vast empire that they rule and they protect. And that's what their job is, that they are essentially protectors of this large territory that they own within the universe. And they're meant to be this all-powerful, you know, nation. And to see them be toppled so easily over here was so weird. It's it's weird because, okay, well, then this could have happened at any point then. You didn't need to wait for them to walk onto Mars to do this if the Super Guardians were this easy to defeat. And it's not like they have any resurrection protocols. So, like, Titan and Fang, they're dead. They're just straight up dead. Mm -hmm. My personal favorite thing with the Shi'ar Empire is how they made Charles feel when Charles married Lalandra and said, bye Earth, I ain't coming back. And he said, fuck off to the (laughs) X-Men. He, like, literally looked like a giant baby because nobody treated him with respect because he didn't deserve (laughs) anything. And he was so used to being a very powerful telepath and, you know, basically genius and nobody, and everyone's like, yeah, we're all geniuses here. You're not that special. And he got very upset and it was very amazing because that was when, well, he still is, but that was when, like, Charles Xavier's Amini... That was that era. So, like, to see to see Charles humbled was really nice, and so I thank the Shi'ar Empire for that. That's about it. The plot point to keep Storm out of the fray at first just was so convoluted to me. Right? Like, like this this series has really hit a lot of my cylinders. This issue is kind of like what what it just it wasn't a bad issue. It just like I'm like okay, that was such a contrived plot point to keep Storm away, and Mm. like why are people still challenging the regent of soul after she beat tarn in that way like i don't get it was it frenzy or abigail who asked this and it still is a non-answer of well there are people who still want to challenge her because it's unbelievable that's just it feels weird to have this very beautiful moment of acceptance for storm last issue Mm -hmm. from the circle where her cousins basically say you really are one of us you are a rocky and to have the rest of the planet not follow and still have her basically have daily challenges is just weird it's one thing if storm is doing something but it that specifically i am going to start to get tired of storm being tied up because someone challenges her because like mm-hmm. can we let her breathe can we let her live right like, can we let her do her fucking job but i think it also shows that like she can still do her fucking job like yeah th- this is just like another thing to do on her to-do list and it doesn't really affect her you know daily tasks like yeah like she still made it in the end even though you know that she was tied up with something else so porcupine boy it's just it's just it just goes to show that she can still do the job and she's still as capable as you know they're saying that she is like oh no absolutely and storm probably if you're going to do power rankings is a very a very likely contender for like number one most powerful mutant just in general with all of her skills like taking everything into account so Mm -hmm. i never have a problem with showcasing storm's strength showcasing her versatility in situations her tactical genius level because storm is very smart when it comes to tactics and strategy and everything and i love all of that it's more of a for me like does she have to be challenged for her spot like every single day yeah no no, i get that and it's gonna get like you said it's gonna get tired very quickly in that i also have a problem with showing storm as this strong woman of color who is always having to be in these battles like like 
yes, it's great that she has that side, but like, mm-hmm. let's show the other sides. Let's show her warmth, her humanity. We know she has all those at like those features. Mm-hmm. Like, let's show those. Like, let's show her as a well-rounded person. Like, cool. I know it's a warrior planet, but like, let's show her fighting to hold on to the pieces that are dear to her instead of just her fighting. Right. Like, let's let's show her actually doing uh, you know what she needs to do in the ring. You know, with with that council there. Like, I would so much rather see Storm having to you know interact with the mutants of Araco. You know, hey, here here we are. We were actually you know I've I've faced down Tarn and you know had to knock his ass into a place a little bit. You know, we're we're dealing with all these other very different mutants and having to figure out diplomacy and how to guide this very new planet, this very new city and settlement to greater things instead of going okay we've got a new challenger has entered the ring like really like come on guys we we can do better we can especially do better for storm we don't always have to put her in physical hand-to-hand combat in order to show her strength absolutely and speaking of physical hand-to-hand combat starting with drew i would love to know how everybody felt about the basically the heavy action sequences our fight sequence that we got this issue that i just felt weird about because you are a team why are you not fighting as a team what is this 1v1 nonsense this isn't this isn't a melee bracket we're not playing smash brothers what do what do you um but drew i would love to know how did you feel about this the lethal legion which have honestly i actually like their designs it's a dumb name but i like the i like the designs Right. That's what I was just going to say is I like the Orbis Extremis design a lot. She was just super sick. Yeah, I mean, like, the 1v1s, they, they do happen. Like, even if we're comparing this fight to, like, the Dark Phoenix Saga, you know, like, they all split up in, in that to, like, you know, get, like, you know, their match. Oh, yeah, it's definitely happened before and that a lot of times it is, I know, a little bit easier to manage, you know, for an artist and the like to draw one character fighting only one because it's easier to keep track of as well probably for a writer it just it feels like a weird thing to just say pick an opponent and then don't let them have it and then to watch them all like fall like dominoes well because they were all like they were like all one shot hits like one punch and done i'm like what that's the part that confused me is how each fight was like a literal one shot i'm like no so like here's my thing like the character designs are great Mm mm-hmm the the name threw me for a loop because you call yourself the lethal legion and i'm like expecting like a totally different group <laughs> like right? all together i'm like i'm like wait where's hangman where's you know like all these and then i'm like oh wait that's not that lethal legion but to have a group of people who can just have mr horsey who can just i kept wanting to call him more horse <laughs> I'm like it's it's Bojack go wrong to have Bojack go bad, <laughs> like just be able to like like squish Fang's head off like that is like insane and like it's just how these if if these people existed anywhere in the universe before and had made any sort of stand the Imperial Guard would have already been more on guard uh, about everything and they would have brought probably a larger contingent to ensure that they were able to protect Empress like Deathbird why didn't she jump into the frame <laughs> right 
And then, and then like, Forearm. Why, like, have Forearm just randomly show up just so he can die? Like, Oh, my God. I'm so pissed about that. You you killed one of my himbos. What the shit? I will say, I mean, though, I love though. that death. That, was, a good that was, that was like, random sticking his hand in his mouth and then uh, making, like, a mouth. Uh, like a like a bunch of spikes Amazed. that was yeah. that was really cool uh he that gives i give the award of beth best death to forearm you know he didn't do much this fight but he got <laughs> coolest death and that i think that counts for something but it, like i hear what everybody's saying and so it's kind of like to bring this into terms of D, it's kind of like throwing a very high power enemy at your players and oftentimes the dm will do that to teach them like you know sometimes in a fight you just gotta run there, mm-hmm. there will be some fights that you can't do but here they're not they shouldn't be running that's not what they're gonna run like that's cowardly that you're not standing your ground and protecting your your empress but the power level of the super guardians doesn't seem to match previous power levels established by them mm-hmm. i feel like it should have been a lot closer than immediately one go down one on the enemy team go down then you know they shouldn't be trading back and forth with it like this it just feels a little weird you can have powerful enemies that's i don't think that's specifically the problem i think mm-hmm. it's just it doesn't feel like it matches what we've already known the super guardians to be like that's just me yeah no yeah. I, I i wholly agree and like okay gladiator boinks the telepath most of the time i don't know if they're still boinking <laughs> whatever you know but gladiator and oracle definitely have a had at least a thing going on who knows after the whole new mutants thing right but like you would think that oracle would have at some point in time tried to put some psychic shields in place for gladiator so that he wouldn't be so easily able to be taken down by just a little bit of doubt oh my god he got taken Taken out like a mean girl said something to him. <laughs> no, worthy. I'm just gonna be over here crying. Like, I'm sorry, bitch. What? I again, like you said, like he, he boinks a, a, a telepath. You you would think that he would at least have some sort of training on how to negate a telepathic attack. Like even even to to bring this into you know talking about their first introduction of the Dark Phoenix when Jean Grey was the host of the Phoenix. You're telling me that like there weren't protocols of psychic defense. Like, like she's now established as an omega level telepath and with telekinesis but like you are a alien empire in space psychic defense should be like 101 because you don't know what races of alien or species you're going to encounter that have psychic powers or, or you know communicate psychic i think it's hysterical that gladiator's weakness is specifically <laughs> confidence <laughs> and that if you do say basically say a mean girl's insult to him he does go down and i think it's hysterical and then to return to the clermontian era where storm swoops in and saves the day with a lightning bolt because if you're ever reading the old claremont runs all the time almost every single fight will end with storm summoning a lightning bolt and destroying everything which is amazing i feel like we can start to move past that and i would love to know like everybody's perspective of like this is like a returning role in issue eight we talked about how it was a very comforting position to put storm because storm throughout the years has constantly been challenged it was that specific fight against tarn was very reminiscent of Storm's fight with the Morlocks, specifically Callisto. Mm-hmm. And Storm's taking control of the Morlocks and saying, you can't stop attacking people. You can live in the sewers and, you know, that's still terrible, but we're not going to do anything about that. But you can't attack people anymore. And mm-hmm. everyone was like, okay, well, she won. This is another time where we're putting Storm into this position of saving the day, because Storm mm-hmm. often saves the day. And I would love to know, not that Storm can't save the day anymore. Obviously, we love to see that, but it's more of, can, we, can she stop 
having to be the person to always do it. I didn't have an issue with it at, at all. I just like, for me, it was the way it was done with the art. Like I thought it could have been a little, like it was underplayed and it could have mm-hmm. had a little bit more umph to it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of like throwbacks, it reminded me of, okay, there was that fight. I don't remember the issues, but um, it was right after Storm lost her powers and they were, X-Men were fighting the Brotherhood and like Pyro was trying to go after Storm and like somehow, you know, I think all of his fire has caused some atmospheric disturbances and the lightning bolt came down and it started to rain and then Rachel had to like lift her up and like you know make her look like she was using her powers it was early 200 um mm-hmm. like that it reminded me of that it just seemed like a point where like okay you know I get the throwbacks that they're doing to it but this this group just took down the Imperial Guard like mm-hmm. is the li- are lightning bolts really going to be the turn the tide turning thing that we think they are well I mean death grip literally has to touch you to do shit so it yeah. makes sense to hit him with a plasma bolt from fucking <laughs> the sky I'm like yeah don't want to be touched by that zap that that makes some amount of sense i i did though love to seeing my favorite phrase in comics in print again or one of my favorite phrases because my other one's the focus totality but i did love seeing <laughs> nine vulnerable while he's blasting in print again i was like did sam gotta be sam <laughs> every issue he's in he's gotta say it nine vulnerable <laughs> when he's blasting. i did actually like the transition i didn't care for the way that titan died but i did like seeing him die in the sense of <laughs> it was really cool to have that three those three panels of like seeing like the necrosis like creep up on him mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was like really gruesome this was honestly a really perfect book for when we're recording this on halloween mm-hmm. <laughs> it is pretty you know gory and scary in that sense yeah so like I, it, it kind of weirdly enough it fits and i like i feel like we're talking about this all the time but i i'm so am fucking digging marvel's dedication to body horror in like almost every it's like seeping over into every publication and i'm just like in love with like every ooey gooey villain like like these villains are fucking terrifying looking like bojack go wrong is like whoa and like the way that like like things body is just like uh like just dropping on that page like like everything about the body horror era that we're in i am so here for <laughs> bojack reminded me of the depiction of Chernoborg, which is like a, the slavic god of death yep. so i was like nice okay we got that you talked about you know, psychic ball lady the first thing i thought of was this is such a weird thing to compare it to was toon mermaid from Yu-Gi-Oh. so if anybody's <laughs> like watch Yu-Gi-Oh, like she's in like the giant clamshell like, that's what i thought of and i was like i like that <laughs> oh my god but she not yeeted like a like an eight ball in the quarter pocket which like, is hysterical I, was I, like, I guess that's how you take care of her right but like they didn't eliminate anybody else i don't did brain boy i don't know his name but brain boy i i get maybe he's just out of commission i don't think he died but i, I imagine getting punched by uh neutron would be bad but then neutron got chainsawed oh i guess a, a very yeah. common horror movie trope he got chainsawed through the gut uh like through the chest and then he turned yeah. him, his black hole just you know <laughs> inverted which oh that's a sentence <laughs> if i had a nickel oh don't try looking that up online <laughs> do not right. google that no <laughs> The revealing twist is that Gyrich has a mole in uh, the sword, and it turns out to be Wizkid. And I have a couple of problems with this for a multitude of reasons, but my biggest problem is that Wizkid is Asian as well as in a wheelchair. And 
what WizKids does and being able to see him in Sword and I when Sword was you know when the first issue came out and we saw this team I was so happy to see a character like WizKid because I wasn't familiar with him but the fact that we have not only another Asian hero but a physically disabled hero who's not defined by his disability visibly disabled like he's in his wheelchair and he makes it work and it, it's wonderful to see that i love that we have that representation for a hero and it's not to say that WizKid can't be a villain and it's not that you can't villainize certain marginalized groups but oftentimes those marginalized groups don't have the time to be the hero they're not given the spotlight to be the one to save the day and having WizKid on the sword team made me really happy for what that represented and i was a little upset by WizKid being revealed to be the mole Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that it had to be one of the main characters, but Frenzy would never have made sense of it. She's not as much of a main character, but like Amelia Voigt might have made a little bit more sense, although I would have fucking hated it if it was Amelia Voigt. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm trying to think who would make more sense. Like, yeah, Mentalo. Mentalo would. But like, besides Mentalo, like, you know, Fabian Cortez is gone, so bye bye. <laughs> that would have been like- a great role. Both Fabian and Mentallo would have made sense for being moles, especially with how much brand shits on both of them. Right. Like it would make sense that yeah, they're gonna go behind her back and be kind of douchey. And and Fabian is so much about you know fame and power and ruling from the bottom. But like it would make sense for well, either one, one of those characters to to turn on you know Sword or the mutants you know as a team. Like okay yeah th- those make sense but to take whiz kid who has at least seemingly so many interpersonal ties with so many of these members and also one of the first representation representations not only of an asian character but of a disabled person who is not trying to quote unquote f- get fixed and become normal the, you know whiz kid's like oh yeah i've got a chair yes i could you know make a, a walking apparatus but it's not me this is you know this is my chair this is how i like it and i'm good with it i'm like damn that is some solid ass representation and now you make him the fucking mole like what what i was like "Mm, he better be a super scroll because i don't buy it there's got to be an explanation so we've only seen taki we haven't seen a lot of taki in the middle period right so we saw early life taki with the exterminators and like his really adorable friendship with Artie and leech which like every time i read something like that it's amazing like my favorite whiz kid Artie and leech story has to be like it's one of the backup stories in the x factor annual i think it's the same one that has irene ashes being given scattered by mystique like there was such a cute friendship there but after that era we never really saw saw what happened so maybe something happened in his life that allowed for him to be co-opted or maybe he's just being co-opted like not psychically but some some through some other means so maybe that's what this is about or maybe he's a double agent maybe like he is brian knows that he's giving the information that he's giving out too so like that's what i'm hoping mm-hmm. to see is a double agent uh, absolutely so we are only revealed that WizKid is can WizKid, as far as we understand is the mole that guy rich is talking about now he could be double crossing and using that just to gain information for krakawa it could be a number of explanations and we don't know what's going on we won't know until sword number 10 hopefully so we can't draw too many conclusions but having such a shocking ending will draw i think a lot of attention and it's a lot to think about i think about me and you raven when we covered the miss marvel issues the the ending of kamala looking like carol danvers 
becoming white. And it's a very shocking mm-hmm. moment to just end an issue on. To, mm-hmm. And when you got to the second issue, you realize what that represents and what that means. You got to be prepared for some heat in the interim until your next issue comes out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm looking at the Marvel Wiki right now, and there is a, a large number of mutants listed as members of, <laughs> of S.W.O.R.D. And again, can have anybody be a villain. You could have anybody go through a villain arc. Always be careful and make sure you understand the tone and the setting that you're going with. Mm-hmm. I would like to say I absolutely adored the art in this issue after <laughs> the art from last issue was uneven, I'll say. Like, it, it was, last issue's art was not my favorite. This yeah. issue's art, I really enjoyed. Like, the artist was able to really bring out, like, the innocence of Zandra. Like, even that little cute moment with Cable and his big bisexual energy not being able to sit in a chair. Like, I'm <laughs> okay, like, yeah. oh my god, this is great. So, like, there were just great great moments in the art that really helped everything pop more i loved brand's look in this issue coloring worked like everything in the art worked the lettering worked like i love like when fang sniffing frenzy and the little like you know effects there like just everything worked for the art in this issue mm-hmm. no i i 100 agree the art was amazing the color stories were definitely on point like it the art was absolutely wonderful i have questions about the plot <laughs> yeah and then and then like i know you had mentioned it too jonah but when titan dies like he goes from this big happy face to like just like that progression is is so amazingly done like i just i can't talk enough good things about the art in this but yeah like too like you said raven like i think this was a plot miss for me but mm-hmm. i Al ewing has done so many amazing things um, i have enough faith to trust where he's going with this oh yeah absolutely <laughs> the, whatever the reasoning will be I'm sure we'll go, uh, okay, no, it does make, it, it'll make sense, and then we'll figure it out, and then if there has to be, there'll be the redemption arc, the, the data white pages of Abigail Brand's notes of her talking about why she chose Cable, and then writing herself a PS of, like, Cable will be proud of this. <laughs> I love in-universe when characters fan, like, fangirl, fanboy, just fan over their heroes, and that was something, it's a, an angle that we're seeing, we see, like, little drips and pieces of, but, like, certain characters, you know, we obviously brought up Kamala Khan but like I would love a little bit more of that of like seeing some of the newer (laughs) new mutants some of the younger mutants kind of talk about what it's like to see their heroes besides uh in Way of X where they're talking about them getting all horned up and leaving babies off at this orphanage (laughs) absolutely one, one thing I wanted to bring up about that data page that you mentioned, Jonah, is um, what did you guys think kind of about this kind of retcon-y thing about Cable and his eye, um, how it phalanx, and he has like a bit of the phalanx in him. A modified TO virus that Apocalypse modified in the future. So it is, it always it was based off of the phalanx, but it was never really as directly linked to it. Mm-hmm. So like, it was never tied as directly. I mean, it was always assumed, so... Although, so what is kind of different, if you look at it, and this might just be a bit of a typo too, it says the techno-organic virus, what warlock species, the phalanx. So warlock is actually technarchy, which mm-hmm. is the, which used to be when it was presented, it used to be the higher form, but Hoxpox itself made it where the phalanx is the higher form of the technarchy um, organization. Although the technarchy always thinks of the higher form. Yeah, that was, uh, that was something that was a little interested by. 
but I like the bridging of at least the the virus to the phalanx because the phalanx were brought up and were a crucial part to the Hawkspox era and they kind of it seems like maybe there just wasn't a lot of time to talk about them so I'm glad that they're at least they're giving nods and they're giving the, the crumbs and pieces where they can because you know everybody wants to tell be able to tell their own stories as well as a lot of managing a lot of an overall story of making sure it fits within the universe and you're not stepping on anybody else's toes on any other book so like I get it I get it and with that I think that's the uh, the end of sword number nine so hopefully you know we'll see how the twist r- resolves itself and <laughs> oh boy <Yeah. laughs> lions and tigers and bears oh, oh my <laughs> oh my oh wait i forgot to say oh my favorite thing in comics is when beast goes oh my stars and fucking garters <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs>